You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This summer, Bruce Willis is back in business. Thanks for saving me, tough guy. And business is booming. I was afraid you weren't going to drop by. Hudson Hawk. That excites me. Check, please. The best cat burglar that ever lived. I didn't want to do it. All I wanted was a cappuccino. But he can't retire. Maybe nobody told you. I quit stealing. If he wants to keep on living. This is a brand new tuxedo! Watch your step. Hold your breath. Hang on for dear life. And catch the hawk. Good plan, Junior. Bruce Willis, Danny Aiello, Andy McDowell, Hudson Hawk. Sounds like a party. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. Thank you for having me on again. Also joining us this week is Mr. Jamie Duvall of Movie Geeks United. Barry Manilow's Copacabana, 3 minutes, 35 seconds. This week we are talking about the 1991 film Hudson Hawk. Directed by Michael Lehman and written by Daniel Waters and Stephen E. D'Souza, the film stars Bruce Willis as the titular cat burglar who becomes embroiled in an ever-deepening web of intrigue and wild adventures in a comedy-action-musical drama. Stephen, when was the first time that you saw Hudson Hawk and what did you think? Actually, I saw it the year it came out. I, I watched it on Christmas Eve that year. I rented it. I, I wanted to see it really bad in the theaters because when I was, I guess when I was around 13, I saw it after, I remember I saw uh, the Deadpool and then I snuck into Die Hard and it, it blew my mind. I, I couldn't believe it. And I was immediately like a really huge Bruce Willis fan. And the, the year after I saw Die Hard, or the year after that, I saw Die Hard 2 in the theaters, and again, was in, you know, loved it, and Hudson Hawk, when it was coming out, it was a pretty big deal, you know, the mall had a big freaking cardboard standee for it, and I missed it theatrically, but immediately rented it when it came out, and and I, I loved it. It was I was like I was really I was like maybe 16 at the time. And I think I was the perfect age for it because it was just this fun, violent romp with action. And um, I, I ate it up with a knife and fork. Like I, I, I remember all the bad reviews that came out and I couldn't believe it. I was like, this movie's what is this movie? This movie's the best. It's not bad. I couldn't like I, I loved it. Like I flipped for Hudson Hawk. Um I watched it quite a few times growing up and I tell you the truth, I hadn't watched it until again until this podcast. So be interesting to talk about. Uh I was the one person who saw it on opening night. It arrived with a lot of bad buzz. So I, I went to the theater with with that in mind. In some ways, it didn't disappoint, and in other ways, I recognized where the bad buzz was coming from because immediately I thought, you know, this is a very easy movie to try to take down a notch because everyone involved in it is so eager to please and entertain. I thought that was where a lot of the criticisms were coming from, but uh, I, I liked it a little bit more than I thought I would. I was I was entertained more than I thought I would be. I saw this one on VHS 
I believe that my friend Mike Thompson, who I uh, initially uh, thought was a huge a-hole, and I'm sure that he thought I was the same, uh, after we finally overcame that, we uh, started a friendship, and one of the things that he recommended to me was Hudson Hawk, and I had been scared away by all that bad buzz, even though... I'm kind of a. I like Bruce Willis a lot, and there's a lot of things that he's in that I shouldn't like, or reasons why I shouldn't necessarily like him sometimes, but I still end up doing so. And I rented this thing on VHS, and it was everything that that Mike Thompson promised and more uh, just so balls out fucking crazy that I really couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I just kind of sit on this fence between liking it a lot, despising it, and then coming back to liking it again. <laughs> And, and sometimes it's within one viewing is where I'm at because there are times where I'm just like, oh my God, this is such this ego project from Bruce Willis. You know, I had seen the return of Bruno. I knew what he was capable of as far as like getting up his own ass. And there's a lot of times where he is just diving deep when it comes to, to being up his own ass in this film. But then other times are just like this, there, there are moments of brilliance. There are moments of brilliance with like Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhard, but there are just other terrific spots to this film. And I just, it's like this, uh, fascinating failure that I just really get into. I mean, it's funny because as I'm reading about the film, I'm reading all of these comparisons because, um, you know, the last action hero came out a few months after this, or I, actually, I think it was a, uh, two years after this and just, you know, people were like, Oh my God, this is so bad. Give us something like Hudson Hawk again. They were already like willing to, <laughs> to, to go back to Hudson Hawk. And I think that there's, there are some really good moments to this film. And I will say that I like Hudson Hawk. I, I can sit down and watch this movie kind of like you, Steven, I can sit down and watch this fairly often and find a lot of enjoyment out of it. I think what it is too, as, as a kid watching it, it's pretty much like a live action, violent cartoon in a way with bad language, you know? So it's, I, I, it's almost like, look like reevaluating it. If they would have just maybe trimmed some of the F words and trimmed some of the violence, they could have got a PG 13 movie out of this. And it maybe it would have been a hit like that because I think maybe it was pointed towards the wrong audiences when it came out. You know, I think like, like I was, you know, seeing Die Hard 2 in the theaters and being blown away by it. And then the, the following summer, this comes out and those audiences were probably like, what, what is this? We, we wanted to see, you know, John McClane. And this is just, it's, you know, I can't imagine what those audiences thought. Cause this is, it's kind of madness, this film. Well, I have to say that the trailer that I dug up to, to introduce the episode, they really emphasize the action. And I think that was such the wrong move to do. You know, they really should have been emphasizing the comedy. And I don't know if it's that the last big uh, Bruce Willis comedy we had was uh, Blind Date, which I don't think went down well with audiences. But really, they should have just kind of concentrated on that whole idea of the moonlighting, you know, David Addison kind of thing where he was able to balance humor and action very well. And and that's the thing, you know, to your point, as far as Die Hard, I love that it has the humor moments to it amongst all of the action bits. And just, you know, those are the lines that we all remember and the moments 
that we remember the most. And I think that audiences were very surprised at just how much that pendulum had swung into the humor versus the action. And, you know, if they came in expecting a balls out action film like a, a Die Hard 2 or Die Hard 1, they were definitely in for a big surprise and i don't think a pleasant one yeah i don't think that the studio probably uh, i would imagine that the studio is probably nervous and how the hell do we market this uh we'll market it for what people love bruce willis for which is the the action you want to see bruce willis the action hero let's take that route most of the movie doesn't work for me uh there's there's like that thin line between endearing and grating and it kind of goes <laughs> fears off into the grading category for me more often than not. But even so, I've always admired that Hudson Hawk is a completely balls-out movie. I found it a very kind of bold exercise in goofiness. One of the things I think is is the strangest thing for me, and it it actually took me quite a few viewings before I could get my head around the plot. And I don't mean to say like this is some sort of you know uh, a labyrinth, uh, you know labyrinthine type plot here where uh, you know things are changing every few minutes. It's no sort of like Christopher Nolan twist and turn type ride of of excitement here, but just the whole idea of how many people are involved in it because we've got. Bruce Willis, we set it up as, you know, well, first we have the opening scene where we're talking about Da Vinci, and we have this whole, like, you know, kind of Da Vinci's greatest hits thing going on where he's, you know, creating this alchemy machine, which will play this major part. We see him creating a, um, a glider airplane type thing, which, again, will come back later. And then we have to have, like, the obligatory laugh line where we are showing why the Mona Lisa is not, you know, smiling with her teeth and stuff. And it's just this kind of, like, you know, it's it's campy but fun kind of thing, and then we immediately move 500 years in the future. One of the flaws I always had with this film was that narration. It's not in the screenplay, so they obviously threw it in there last minute, probably because maybe the opening was too slow and people weren't going to understand it. But it is the sh- they picked the weirdest guy to do that narration, even the way he says Hudson Hawk with like a strange yeah. whistle into his tone. It's just such. It's so bizarre that narration. It sounds like like Walter Brennan or something, or something like that. It's like this weird. It's not smog. I mean, it's so kind of overcooked. I actually went back to Daniel Waters last night and I said I forgot to ask you about the narrator. It's credited to William Conrad, but there's no way that that's William Conrad. You know, if you guys remember William Conrad, Jake and the Fat Man, all the way back to like Bullwinkle and stuff, he had that amazing baritone. He was the voice of authority, and I, you know, he was just so great with his voice. Chrysler has fire in its eyes. Take charge with a 440 V8. It'll take the measure of anything moving. Take charge with the biggest brakes in the price class. And then, yeah, I was like, that sounds more like the guy that used to do Winnie the Pooh's voice rather than (laughs) William Conrad. And he was like, no, it was William Conrad. It was like two years before he died. But then I even went back and watched an old Jake and the Fat Man episode just to see, like... Did he have a stroke or something? You know, did, did something affect his voice? But I think he was just putting on a voice, and I had a real hard time, even knowing it's William Conrad, to say that's William Conrad's voice. It just does not sound like him whatsoever. 
Exactly 500 years later, an artiste of a different field, the one of cat burglary, was getting out of Sing Sing. He was known as the Hudson Hawk. I, I think you described it personally, uh, perfectly. It's, it sounds like William Conrad with a stroke. I think uh, you, you put it very succinctly. <laughs> but if this was being shot in 90 going into 91, and I looked up Jake and the Fat Man, and it looks like that ran until 94, and I can't remember when William Conrad passed away, but he, you know, he was getting around in the show, and he sounded okay at least in the episode that i saw so yeah i don't know what was going on with this it was a very weird choice for that voiceover i definitely agree actually the first time i saw it it got to me and then on this repeated viewing but I, but i just I don't, like out of everybody they could have got it. i don't know why it just drives me so crazy that voiceover <laughs> narration and it never comes back well i guess it comes back in at the very ending for two seconds and then that's it it's to your point, it's not in the the script, though. I think that there are some lines in the script that the narrator says almost verbatim as far as the description of the scene and stuff. And so we go 500 years in the future, and we've got Hudson Hawk, Eddie Hawkins, coming out of jail. We are immediately introduced to his parole officer, and his parole officer is the first crooked person that we meet, and we're just going to get so many. And that's the thing that kind of confused me like i was saying about this plot is that he's surrounded by bad guys all the time and it's like every single person he meets gets worse and worse and worse and it just took me the longest time to realize that they are all really part of one plot like it felt like there were many plots going on like i thought there was the parole officer plot happening i thought there were the the uh, mario brothers plot happening i thought there was the cia plot happening i thought there was the the mayflowers plot i thought there was that going and then only to find that they're all working together so that plus then adding in the vatican later on it's just like oh okay so really there's only two strings happening the the mayflowers all the way down to the parole officer and then we've got the vatican and that's it but i kept getting everybody confused especially because the vatican thought that the cia was working for them but they were actually working for the mayflowers but it just really confused me because it just it gets deep pretty fast yeah and i think also we're coming out of the 80s and it's still slightly dipped in action movies because what i noticed something about the 80s it's the era of the mini boss in action films you know you always set up like these mini boss characters you have to fight and kill to get to the next guy and i always love that so as a kid watching this you know i, I just I, I, that was something I, i've always liked in action films you know like especially commando is like a fucking mini boss mm. movie one after the other he takes out and i just and it is a joel silver movie like those other action films so i kind of i kind of dig all these little bad guys that are constantly coming into the fold you know, you, you got to give Hudson Hawk points for making uh, for casting Frank Stallone as one of those little bosses. And that kind of nice in joke too, where it's like these are instructions that even your brother can understand. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's really fantastic in it, and it, God, it's a shame he wasn't in any other stuff. I mean, this must be the big, the, the largest film he's ever been in. You know, and he's really good in it. He, he's he's really funny. There are so many good set pieces in this film as well, and I will say that. I mean, it could be cheesy as heck, but I actually like the whole thing of Bruce Willis on the hospital gurney, like going across the Brooklyn Bridge and everything. 
I mean, that to me, you know, th- this film was written by Daniel Waters or rewritten by Daniel Waters, and that feels like one of these uh, Ford Fairlane type, mo- uh, you know, action sequences to me. Like, I, especially the whole like muttering under the breath and all this kind of stuff, and like the whole "Can you believe that this is happening to me?" It so reminds me of like the cemetery chase in Adventures of Ford Fairlane. I, I love the the little toll booth sequences. Is really. Well, that's the weird thing, too. I, I know that you read the script of this one, and so did I. And, and, Jamie, I don't know if you had a chance to, but just the whole thing, like, you come to a scene like that, and obviously in our versions of the screenplays that we have, these PDFs, we don't have blue pages in these things. It's all black and white. So it's strange. You come to certain sections of the movie and all of a sudden the scene plays like three or four times in the script. And each time is written just a little bit different. It's like, we've got the rewrites, but then there are times where it's like, you just have different, possible laugh lines that bruce willis can say so like the whole thing like towards the end of the movie where one of the characters gets his head cut off and it's like you won't be attending that hat convention in july when you look at the script there's like five or six different variations upon that and it's just like which one's gonna work so let's give bruce all of these different lines and let's see how this is so same thing with that uh, Brooklyn Bridge thing. It's just like, okay, here's all these possible things that Bruce can say. Let's have him say everything and see which one sticks. Yeah, that is the trip. I, that, it got me off guard at first, and then I realized that's what was happening because the script is really long. The mo- it can't be that long. And then I realized it's also lyrics to all the songs and after the scene. And so, like, yeah, the scene, even on the freeway. Or not the highway going towards the the toll. There's all kinds of conversations you can have with people and passing cars, and then you can see. Can you see the one they actually chose with the two girls? Yeah, that, that was kind of a trip. And one of the things I think I read also during the making of, because it was mostly Bruce Willis's project, is that and one of the reasons why it's you know like the days went really long is because at the end of every take he was watching the scenes also, and then trying. He was like, oh, let me shoot that again with a different joke. So. I, I wonder if those are from the set or those inc- – even on top of those, they're adding in even more jokes on top, I wonder. Yeah, and it definitely sounds like he and Michael Lehman didn't necessarily see eye to eye on a lot of stuff. Like I was reading some um, you know, kind of reports from the set where it was like, you know, oh, well, the director wanted us to do, you know, one continuous take, but Bruce wanted it to be several or, you know, you know, Michael wanted it to be a dolly shot, but Bruce wanted it to track or whatever. And it was just like, okay, you know, it seems like it was kind of co-directed or coerced directed <laughs> as it were. So I can't imagine that that made for a very pleasant experience. Though I have to give Michael Lehman props on the audio commentary. He definitely doesn't seem to have a lot of sour grapes going on, which is good. Yeah, it must have been like, well, for him, it was, this is probably his, I think this is his biggest budget and coming off of Heather's and Meet the Applegates, like, good lord like you know this is a huge playing ground you have what's the budget i mean the budget's all i i keep reading different things about the budget but it's a 65 i guess or 85 it goes all over the place so for him it must have been you know it must I don't, it must be a really important film for him because he never had anything like that he was going all over the world for months shooting this really huge film. So it is kind of cool to hear that he is still defending it. It's interesting that it is such a global project because there are times where I'm just like, 
why did you necessarily need to shoot like so much in Rome or why did this need to be here? And it was just like, I mean, cause there's a couple shots where I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, that's Rome for sure. You're in Rome kind of thing. But then other times I'm like, yeah, you, I'm sure you can find a set that would just double that without too much of a problem. I agree. But the, but you know, the whole spirit of the movie is one of excess. So, oh yeah. Yeah. So I think it fits right into that. And, and speaking of the excess and kind of the, 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 the different lines that they would give Bruce Willis to see which one clicked. I mean, we hear that a lot now from someone like, uh, Adam McKay or Judd Apatow, who, who off camera, they, they say, they, they tell the actor a laugh line to say on camera during a take. So there's one school of thought that says that's a great way to work. There's another school of thought that says that shows the kind of an insecurity in your screenplay. And another thing with the laugh lines, a, a slight problem I have with Hudson Hawk, is that everyone is trying to be funny in it. Like every every piece of dialogue is designed to be a laugh line, no matter who's saying it. And I was watching a, a review that the review that Cisco and Ebert did of Hudson Hawk, and they brought up a point that they said that they thought it could have been a much more successful movie. If if those kind of hijinks were just rele- relegated to the Bruce Willis and Danny Aiello character characters, right, and maybe all the peripheral characters played it straight, and I thought that was an interesting notion, and I didn't know what what, what you guys think about that. Well, if you watch a Marx Brothers movie, you've got the four, three or four crazy people in the middle of the action, and then everybody else is just trying to figure out what is going on or just kind of have their own movie. And then these guys are this force of chaos that come in and kind of wreck everything. And I could see that as far as like if Iello and Willis were those forces of chaos just coming in and screwing up everybody's plans. If this was more of a, a comedy of manners rather than a screwball comedy or if they were these representations of screwball inside of a comedy of manners because we've seen the whole idea of the you know the robberies and all these kind of things we you know there's the one character who talks about being like david niven you know sneaking in and sneaking out the richard e grant says the character says that and you know i know there are elements of like a top copy and to catch a thief and these kind of films that are used as a blueprint or of course you know north by northwest is also a blueprint with the whole george kaplan thing but yeah i could see those are playing it straight and then you bring in these two crazy characters or maybe even a third crazy character when you have the andy mcdowell character in there as well if she ends up becoming unhinged as the events go on as well i don't know i kind of like some of the stuff and of course i love the richard e grant and um Sandra Bernhardt characters. I think the Mayflowers are just such a wonderful addition to this. And they just, the way that they play it to the absolute hilt throughout this whole thing is just, I love it. I love everything that comes out of their mouths. That's the one thing I guess you would lose if all the other characters, if they, if, 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 if Hudson Hawk and his partner were the only wacky ones, you would lose that amazing performance from these guys. But, but then again, if Hudson Hawk and Danny Aiello were the only wacky characters and if everyone else was like was more serious, maybe you would feel there was more on the line, like you'd feel more scared of Hudson Hawk going back to prison and stuff like that because like it, it just feels like 
you know, like John McClane in Die Hard, he bleeds and he gets injured and he limps and he, you know, Hudson Hawk just is constantly getting pummeled, but it's nothing. He's just, he's a living cartoon. So maybe in a way, if the other characters were serious, you'd feel more scared. But yeah, you would lose that incredible performance from Bernhardt and Richard E. Grant. And they're, yeah, they, they're the, they are definitely the glue to this film too. I might find more of the movie funny if I didn't feel like everyone was competing for the laugh, I thought that that might have been to the detriment of the movie. But there are, there are I mean, Richard E. Grant, I laugh, I always laugh at two, two places in the film, and one of them belongs to Richard E. Grant. When he first is talking to Bruce Willis, and he's tied up, and just out of the blue, he just walks, it's just a throwaway, he just walks right past his henchman, the one with the, the sword, and just slaps him on the face. <laughs> it's like, let's make a throwaway. And then the other moment that is so unadulterated silliness is, is when he sees Frank Stallone at the bar in the first 10 or so minutes of it. And uh, Danny Aiello whacks Frank Stallone's henchman over the head with the wine bottle. Before they get up to leave, there's that, there's that slow motion shot of the henchman looking all dazed pointing his threatening finger at Bruce Willis and that little drum beat on the, on the soundtrack that's so overdramatic. For some reason, I, I, I see that, and that's pissed my pants funny to me. It's so silly. The, the scene when he's in Gates' apartment and Gates is holding the horse, and he's like, I might not, not know art, but I know what I like, and, it, and Hawk looks at the dogs playing poker picture. <laughs> freaking kill that killed me when i was a kid and it kills me now i <laughs> i just lose it <laughs> like that is just, i don't know what it is but that kills me i think what might put it too far over into that one column is the whole idea of the the candy bars the cia coming in and all of them having the candy bar code names and all that kind of stuff a lot of that just doesn't necessarily work for me like the one guy who plays snickers absolutely fine with him the guy who plays butterfinger actually there are times where he is pretty darn funny especially when he starts calling james coburn coach towards the end of the film oh oh the, the part he's like you're making it come out of my nose that is really fucking funny. <laughs> nails that part the kit kat thing i love david Caruso in this film. I think he is absolutely brilliant in his, his miming and not saying a word and the little cards and stuff, but he just feels like he's in another movie a lot of times where it's just like, I wish there was another film where this character existed because he just doesn't necessarily fit with the rest of the candy bars. Mm -hmm. And then I, I feel really bad saying this, but the woman who plays Almond Joy, she gives the worst line reading in the entire movie. And I just, I can never get past it. It just like stops the whole film dead for me when she delivers that line of George, you promised no old CIA, new CIA jokes. It is just the clunker of all <laughs> clunkers, man. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, this movie is really walking a, this movie is really walking a tightrope and you, and you don't know what's going to hit and what's not going to hit. I mean, the Naked Gun movies are much the, the same way. And I, maybe that was the thinking. Maybe just keep them coming as fast as as fast as we can, because some of them will hit, some of them won't. Maybe, but the the important thing is that our batting average is above you know above five hundred or whatever. Well, she actually had more lines in the script 
uh, there's a couple of scenes and they kind of they're yeah they're not in the film at all so i wonder what happened there <laughs> but the kick the Kit Kat character, I, I, I do like him. He is a very I, – I, I wish there was more of him in the film. He was like my favorite of that whole gang, the candy bars. Like, I, interesting enough, in the novelization, they and, – and the script does the same thing. They, they notice on Crusoe's hands, one – it was supposed to – what is – one says like hate and the other one says frog for some reason is tattooed. And, and in the novelization, it mentions the reason why he never talks is because he's had his his tongue was cut off, and it doesn't say where. But it's kind of this. I, I kind of like that, and I kind of wish they kept that in the film because because the the film has these weird violent scenes, and just adding in another kind of aspect like that, I would have really dug to see it in the film because you know it still kind of brings it back that there is dark elements that you should be worried about these characters sometimes. You know, it's, it's not just all Looney Tunes. That's just a weird break to have in the industry to play a candy bar in a Bruce Willis movie. Lehman on the audio con- commentary talks about how they actually have a, a prosthetic made for Caruso's mouth so that it looked like his tongue was removed. And at one point, somebody asked him, you know, what's the matter? Cat got your tongue? And he opens his mouth and you see no tongue inside of it. But apparently he couldn't get Caruso to give the right performance for that part and caruso didn't really want to do it at all so that would have been nice had we seen that i think him as kick hat might be my favorite david caruso performance maybe him in without warning uh, might have been up there but i think him as kick hat was probably the thing especially like when when they tell him to go watch uh it's before the the Andy McDowell when he's in drag, but there's one part where he's dressed up as a statue. I just love that. I love yeah. the reveal of him as being the statue. Not only that, I love the sound effects. You know, it sounds like rock like stone moving when he moves his head and everything. I love that little touch. So yeah, we've got so many things that are happening in this movie. At one point I was going to going to try to you know have us talk in a linear fashion but it just really doesn't make a whole lot of sense as we're trying to take this thing apart because there are just so many parts to it i mean we haven't even talked about like the andy mcdowell character and her working at the vatican and they brought in andy mcdowell like last minute because i forgot i forgot who the original actress was and i think that's probably why you know i don't think she wasn't the first choice i mean i get she was hot at the time because of sex lies and videotape and everything but yeah, she didn't really have any chemistry with Bruce Willis. I didn't, you know, I I didn't really see, and I think that might have just been a, a problem right there. How you, how do you like that dolphin scene? Yeah, that, next to the narration, <laughs> that's, that's the <laughs> other sequence that gets to me. It is just so shrill and piercing her dolphin impersonation. It just drives me nuts. I kind of you know, wish that she had gotten an Iganook kind of treatment and had her brains blown out at that point. So it's just like, shut up. And I don't know if she's doing it on purpose, like, or on porpoise, I suppose, (laughs) but, or if she really is having a bad reaction to the, the Kuari or whatever, the, the uh, numbing agent that she has been given, but yeah, I, she's very enigmatic. Let's just say that as far as her character. I never really get to know her very well. I mean, I can imagine, especially if she was kind of a last-minute addition to it, that she was probably on that set, and she was thinking to herself, what the hell am I in? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, so I have some empathy for her, if that was the case. I think even 
the last scene of the film when Danny Aiello comes back from the dead for like the third time. She has like another line there that's just really off. You're supposed to be blown up into fiery chunks of flesh. Yeah, it's not delivered very well, unfortunately. It's like it's so funny because I was reading some reviews of the of the film, reading reviews from the time, reading reviews kind of like you know written over the last few years. You know, as this movie has been quote unquote discovered, you know, on DVD or on Netflix and stuff, and just there was one guy. You know, you were talking about how Bruce Willis and and Danny Aiello they are basically living cartoon characters and there was somebody complaining about how can they fall out of a two-story window and land and they're still fighting and be okay they would have broken bones and stuff <laughs> and i'm just like really wow you want to add reality to this and then another <laughs> reviewer i don't even think it was the same guy i want to say it was another reviewer was complaining about the end with danny aiello coming back from the dead and i was just like they purposefully make fun of that in the movie you know the whole like you know well what about this well they had sprinklers well what about this you know and it's just airbags you know and it's like they're making fun of it in the movie so what you know they're not it's like people aren't picking up on the humor no stuff. not at all like at what point did these critics think they were watching a merchant ivory movie i mean i i don't i don't understand you know but uh one of the silly uh, devices that I thought really worked was the uh, swinging on a star. It was the whole the whole cat burglary time to their rendition of swinging on a star? Uh, that's probably my favorite sequence in the movie, and it's it's an ingenious idea that, like most of the movie, the movie's ideas could have completely flopped. I mean, there there is a, a real bravery in this movie that I, I do give it credit for. Like they set it up very well as far as you know, quizzing each other as far as times of songs and everything, and you don't necessarily know why that is. And then when it starts, it's just like, ah, okay, this makes sense. And then yeah, when they start singing in the movie, a lot of people really could have gotten completely turned off at that point. But yeah, I was with it. I was with this film at that point, and I was really very pleasantly surprised. And yeah, it could have just. I can really see, like, I completely empathize with people if that was the moment where they're just like, forget this, I am not in, into this movie, and just turn it right the hell off. But I was there, man. I'm there for the ride. And once I hear that song, that thing is stuck in my head for the rest of the day, if not for the rest of the week. I agree. I, I kind of, I, I, I do like that that concept of no no watches. Just you know, by the end of the song, we got to meet here. It's kind of cool. I, I like that whole sequence. I think it's really cool. And they both, you know, they both sing it well and they perform it well. It's, it's a, yeah, it's it is a standout scene. And what's what's strange about it is that at the ending of that scene, when they're standing on the ledge and they're looking down, when you hear the the security guard fire his gun, Danny Aiello for some reason like kind of like grabs his stomach like he's been shot but he wasn't it's it's just very odd like daniello like almost dies like three times like i said earlier and that's one of the times it's, it's very strange and then when they jump and he lands in the chair like going back to james's uh siskel and ebert review they hated that scene 
they just didn't understand it, that, that jump cut. I also didn't like the fact that throughout the movie, people would jump out of windows and instead of being killed, they would land in chairs, sitting next to somebody, would start talking to them. People turn up coincidentally without any explanation on two different continents to the point where you're just sitting there feeling whoever made this movie was completely addled. There was just absolutely no window yeah. for the audience to get in through to get into the story. Well, it's just, you, we're kept out of it. You know enough of, about the history of movies to know what kind of a style they're going for. They're mm -hmm. trying to do the Hope and Crosby routine. They're trying to do uh, a little bit of Abbott and Costello. And they're trying to bring in all these kinds of things. And it's too, too much. It just doesn't work at all. Yeah, and I guess like right there and then, that, that whole thing, if, if you're not in by that point, it, it's over. You're, <laughs> you're not going to get this film at all. Well, what happened if Danny Aiello really did die during that first robbery and the rest of this is all just his fantasy? It's, yeah, it's like it's it's like Bruce Willis in a very early version of The Sixth Sense. Like uh, Danny Aiello is the dead person the whole time. Nobody else can see him. He is his Tyler Durden kind of thing. Yeah, he he's phenomenal in this film. Like uh, Danny Aiello just has this like one scene, like this one little uh, monologue where he was like, I, "I hated cigarettes until I saw my first no smoking sign." You know, keep off the grass. Let's play soccer. He just has this great – he's got these little great monologues, and he just delivers them so well. Like, I, I love him in this film. I, I think he's really important to this movie, uh, and he is very good. If for nothing else, that he he kind of tempers uh, Bruce Willis's kind of overbearing smirkiness in the scenes that they share. I mean, the, the scenes that they do share feel like they are shared as opposed to some of the other uh, uh, group scenes among different actors. Yeah, there's a point where Aiello disappears from the proceedings for a while. Like, we see him with the Mayflowers, but we don't really get any interaction. And I miss him. I miss him being in the proceedings, because I do like that chemistry that he and Willis have throughout this film. I like his the first car ride with him, when he picks him up, the, you know, which starts the whole cappuccino thing. And which, which, for me, this is the movie that introduced me to cappuccinos when I was a kid. You know, I wanted one so bad watching this film. Listening to the audio commentary, Lehman talks so much about setting up the cappuccinos because they were so afraid that nobody would know what a cappuccino was and just that they really were, like, afraid of having the cappuccino in there because it was just like, well, what if nobody really knows what that is? And what if the set, you know, because 1991, it was a whole different world when it came to <laughs> designer coffee. Well, and also uh, the, the the most advanced uh, technology that they refer to from that time is Nintendo. <laughs> which is also something they bring up in that car conversation which i also like that the bad guys are the mario brothers which is kind of nice i almost wish that there was more of the you know video game kind of stuff because it's appropriate you know steven you were the one that posted the video game on my feed right yeah there was an intent an uh, nes game that came with this that that came out during this time of this film and i was really into nintendo back then and if i would have known i would have bought it i didn't find out about it until years later but after watching the gameplay you're just pretty much throwing a baseball at at like you know you're trying to rob you're trying to get the horse and you're throwing baseballs at the security guards
I don't know. It doesn't look like the best game. You could actually go on YouTube right, right now and watch the long gameplay of the Hudson Hawk NES game. But that was very clever because there wasn't many movie tie-in games back then. There was only like a handful during the NES era. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of this stuff, you know, as far as those things like that speech, the uh, I never wanted to smoke a cigarette till I saw a no smoking sign. Like there are clunkers of lines and there are some really good ones Uh, for me they hit more than they sink and for me a lot of that just has to do with the panache that they're delivered but there are times where nothing can save uh, a bad line and even there are times where a line is so good that it goes beyond the performance and i think that this movie kind of is all over the map as far as you know where that 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 level is as far as is this a good line or is it a good performance? And most of the time for me, it's, it's a combination of both. I'll tell you the truth. When I read the script, I finally understood some of the lines. Cause I think some of them went by really fast in the film and I didn't, yeah. I didn't grasp them at all. And then reading the script, I'm like, wow, that is a funny, that is a funny line. Or it is some of the stuff Bruce Willis is talking is really complicated too. I, when he goes back and sees Danny Ello after um, Gates is killed by the butler, there's this line reading. It's just like, Took Mr. Ed, Humpty Dumpty it over Gates' head, and get this. He said it was made by Leonardo da Vinci's Forza. I consider it to be the prize of tonight's auction of Auger, the Equestrion. I never caught that until I read the script and understood, oh, you bashed the statue of the horse over this guy's head. That's what I all mean. It's like some of the stuff is just spoken really fast, and I couldn't catch some of the dialogue until I read the script and could appreciate it a little bit more. Yeah, I will say that I definitely found more to appreciate after having read the script. You know, rewatching the movie again just yesterday, I was like, okay, yeah, this this clicks a little bit more. And especially having the whole little Eddie thing definitely <laughs> Dude, I'm obsessed yeah. with little Eddie man. I fucking love it I had no idea about little Eddie oh, I, I I had to buy the novelization for a penny like last month because I needed to know more about this little Eddie like, like, I just, like this is, it blew my freaking mind like why isn't this in the film this is brilliant it brings it adds a whole other dimension to the movie well let, let's not keep people in high suspense i wanted to go ahead and take a break here and play an interview with the screenwriter daniel waters who will explain in great detail the meaning of little eddie we'll be back after this and a little bit of a break Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. 
Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over the counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and Blackberry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A N O M A L Y podcast.com. Just one one hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. When a grieving mother finds a way to bring back her dead son, it's not all that comes home. Miss Mabel was uh, discovered deceased inside one of the rooms. Her body was found upright in a rocking chair. What's in a figure made of sticks and leaves? Judging from initial reports, Miss Mabel had been dead a matter of months. Based on the unsolved mystery of Olivia Mabel. There were a lot of photos and personal objects on that, and candles and what we call santuarios. You have no power over Leave me alone! short film from Elf Tree Media. Mommy. Thought Form. Support our Kickstarter campaign now through February 17th at thoughtformfilm.com. Like, of all the movies that we've talked about, I still haven't talked to you really about Heathers that much, which is probably like... Yeah, you know, who, who wants to talk about movies that are actually acclaimed in their time? But I did kind of want to talk to you about that as far as how you and, and Michael Lehman met and what your working relationship was on that, because it I, I would imagine it plays right into Hudson Hawk. It, it's funny. It's the difference between Dan Waters, the boy from Indiana who came to California, and Michael Lehman, the, the USC graduate, and then for Heather. So then for Hudson Hawk, it's, you know, we're working filmmakers at that point, and we're kind of already starting to become different people who thought they knew it all. And we're proven wrong. Yeah, no, Heather's was an interesting experience in that, you know, I I wrote, and you, you may have heard some of this before, but I wrote Heather's, you know, you know, I always say it was the best thing that could have happened is how naive I was in that 
you know, I came in, moved to California and said, I'm just going to write a script. And I wrote Heather's while I worked at a video store long before the days of Tarantino. And, you know, it was, my goal was, my original goal was let's make a, um, a teen film, just like Stanley Kubrick did a war film and a science fiction film and a horror film. This would be Stanley Kubrick's teen film. So I thought like, perfect. You know, this is going to be his Kubrick, you know, and so I was obsessed with like, I'll send the Kubrick, just let him read the script and he'll know it's for him. And, and instead, like I moved out, when I moved out to California, it was with my, um, you know, I moved in with my my best friend from high school, Larry Karaszewski, who's since gone on to become a, a screenwriter himself with Ed Wood and Peel vs. Larry Flint and what have you. And my other roommates all worked on this student film called The Beaver Gets a Boner. And its its director was Michael Lehman, and they passed on the script to Michael Lehman, which you know, kind of vaguely even behind my back, they gave it to him, and he starts calling me with his ideas and notes, and I'm looking at the phone like, who's this fucking guy? Like, you know, <laughs> this isn't Stanley Cooper. I don't hear a British accent or a Brooklyn accent. I mean, I mean, Brooklyn accent trying to be a British accent, but um, but it's funny. It just kind of happened that. Um, you know, I I ended up with an agent that didn't get Heather's, so Michael Lehman gave it to his agent, um, who did get it, and she she also represented Denise Novi, the producer. And all of a sudden, a movie that I had been, a script that I had been taking meetings on, like the, you know, it made quite a name for myself. Um, that suddenly, and but every time I'd have these meetings, people would go, yeah, this is an amazing, this is original, a great original script. Like, it's never going to get made. And then all of a sudden, you know, just by doing it the low-budget route, not giving it to Stanley Kubrick, not giving it to even Alan Parker, who was one of my second choices, <laughs> uh, you know, we ended up making it. And, you know, and Michael Lehman was, you know, I always say, like, you know, oh, you want Stanley Kubrick, but then Michael Lehman's the kind of guy who's going to get my tone as far as, like, you know, he'll understand the intellectual, satirical side of it, but... He's also not above, you know, my need for a good, cheap laugh. So, you know, we got along great. And, you know, Hudson Hawk was never, you know, it was nothing I was interested in. And he was, he was doing Hudson Hawk long before I was. And, you know, I had my experience with Ford Fairlane, which, you know, um, had its joys and its downside and like, okay, I did my Jill Silver movie, time to move on. And then all of a sudden, Layman's now attached to Joel Silver and he's got this script. And, you know, I read the script and, you know, it was not great. And people like to make fun of Hudson on because Bruce Willis is one of the writers, but Bruce Willis, all he really did was have an idea of a guy called Hudson Hawk who gets out of prison and he's cap and he's a burglar and that's all he had and you know and and I never quite got it at all and so I kind of just we ended up doing our own crazy thing and I ended up you know my joke about Hudson Hawk is that if I hadn't been involved it would be a movie like Striking Distance or Mercury Rising a movie no one would complete everyone would completely forget about it not remember not remember anything about it. it. Took me to make it one of the worst movies ever made. In, in quotations, whatever cult is developed around it, whatever strange passions have developed around it, is also due to me. But I think, you know, why people hate it is definitely due to me too. 
by you being involved, did that just suddenly raise expectations up to these two guys worked on Heathers and how dare they create something that isn't Heathers? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I should have thought about that a little more. <laughs> um, although, I, although I do think people were too busy hating the movie for just because it was the the time to hate Bruce Willis, who had gotten a little big for his britches. So, I think most of the hate you went for that. But um, you know, I, I definitely whoever could be disappointed from by the fact that we did Heather's. You know, they certainly were. I mean, I you know, it's so funny. I'm with, I, like, I'm, you know, you caused me to think about it this morning. I'm like, and I was just like, God, I really, you know, here's the funny thing. And I use this all the all the time. It's like when you genuinely don't want to do something, that's when they make you an offer you can't refuse. Like, you know, if if you're playing hard to get, it's like something will, some, and this goes for not just um, getting money from a studio, but like, you know, I would think like, they tell you when you're going out with a girl to pretend not to be into her and that's going to make her into her. Like, I always find that a woman can see through that. But if you're generally not into them, then it really works. So anytime anybody says they don't want to do something, I say, okay, now if you genuinely don't want to do it, they're going to come back with more money. And so by the time I was done saying no 800 times, I, you know, I couldn't, I, I had to say yes. So you said that Michael Lehman had been working on this for a while. Where was the project at kind of when you finally did say yes? I mean, it was surprisingly like the structure. I mean, nothing with Rome. Or I think there was like Bruce, one of Bruce Willis's best friends, Carmine, played one of the mafia guys. So there's a mafia woman. And, you know, he wanted a best friend. He wanted a love interest. I think it ends up in a ranch, and there's like a Texas billionaire is the the, the villain. So there's vague structural similarities. I didn't start from scratch, but I did rewrite most of it. You know, I, I should be saying, oh, I just did a one week of work. But again, like you know, whatever Hudson Hawkness there is about Hudson Hawk. Again, Hudson, I mean, there was an element of humor, but it was not crazy town the way. Um, the eventual script made not, not like not that you watch Hudson Hawk and say oh that's an actual script that was typed up like you know it did it, it, you know you, if you sit and watch the movie and typed it up it would be very different than the finished screenplay not that my screenplay was a, was a you know a, a great structural precise Swiss watch you know but it um, you know definitely again I the refrain I'm to blame I'm to blame, and if you like it, I'm also to, to, to what, what, what you like about it. So it's credited to, well, as you already mentioned, Bruce Willis and Robert Kraft get a, a story by credit, but it's credited to you and Steve D'Souza. What was kind of the order as far as you guys working on it? Was he already attached, or did he come in later? How was that? Oh, no, Steve D'Souza, he, he came in before me. and uh, Okay. And... Um, yeah, he and I know Steve, and he's a great guy. And like, I mean, he, I mean, but it's funny if you talk to Steve D'Souza about Die Hard, like I'm, I'm, which I, you know, movie I to this day worship, and it's what got me in the Jill Silver business. It's so much, it's so funny how much of that was written on the fly. Like to me, that's a great script. And but like, you know, when he talks about it, it's like, you know, I mean, it's so funny. Like, oh. Hey, maybe if they turn the power off, that that'll that'll open the safe. Really? 
yeah, let's do that. That sounds great. And like, which I thought was like, oh, I thought that was like a great thought out thing, but they came up with it on the set. And so it's like, but yeah, I mean, I think Steve was happy to like, that it was kind of a, it was kind of, the script was kind of, there was a muddle to it of, of what they wanted the script to be. Cause it was like, you know, God forbid Bruce was in a position then where he could basically do any, anything. Right. But you know, sometimes when you have that much freedom, it's hard to do any, you know, when you can do everything, it's hard to do anything. So, you know, and then I came aboard and I go, Hey, you know, this is, you know, my, my problem to begin with is that I see too many movies. I see every movie that comes out. So I don't want to, you know, it's my curse that I don't want to do things that I've seen before. So I end up like doing something, you know, original that may not, you know, original, I always say originality over quality. You know, I'm sure I've said this to you before that, you know, that you only talk to me about my, my Joel Silver movies is that, you know, I never met a tone I didn't like. And I feel like, this is again a movie where I just wouldn't play by the, you know, I just, I wanted to, I, you know, I'm always, I'm always ahead of the curve in a, in a bad way. Like as far as like, who wants to see another action movie? And I, you know, subverted the action film before anybody wanted it subverted, subverted. That I think later on when, you know, you have a all out spoof, like all out spoof, like awesome powers, people are ready for it and they get it. You know, I always think this is a problem with my films and that I think the normal film goer and especially the critics, they're like the judges at the Olympics where you need the diver needs to tell the judges what he's going to be diving. Like so everybody can know going in, OK, it's going to be this kind of movie. Not that I would be able to tell people what this kind of movie was, but I certainly certainly the the sober ad campaign and what people expected from Bruce Willis did not lead no one had an idea what was coming down the pike it does seem to have kind of a everything in the kitchen sink quality to it yeah that was a good thing i mean i always think the 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 litmus test scene is when they sing, when they they rob the place to music like they have running times memorized and they they do so they to swing in the swinging on the star scene basically like there's so many critics that say what was that scene that makes no sense whatsoever and like if if that's your attitude toward that scene you're gonna hate you're gonna hate not just the scene but you're gonna hate the movie well when on the other hand if you're like okay this is something new uh, the, you know this makes its own kind of weird sense then there's a chance you might I mean you definitely like the scene there's a chance you may even like the movie well yeah and I like how that keeps coming back like people mention another song or oh, yeah. what could be a song title and then Bruce Willis always has to say what the t- running time is so much I don't remember but yes that's, that's true I have to say that I think my favorite parts of the movie involve the Mayflowers those two, Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhard together, are just amazing. Well, yeah, I, I looked at some of the reviews. Um, he have, you know, I basically typed Hudson Hawk underrated and see what came up. And so, so but like, I think one critic said that it, that they start their performances over the top and find a way to keep going even higher. 
I don't know. Yeah, you're, you're right. This was kind of the time to hate on Bruce Willis, and I don't know. Was he unscathed by the whole Bonfire of the Vanities? Because that was the film that he did right before this. Yeah, nobody. You're, you're not doing a Bonfire of the Vanities podcast. I mean, nobody. Like some of these movies, like that's a true bad movie. That's it's not. No one got enjoyment from that movie. Well, he was disastrously miscast. But I think there was again a lot of you know even Tom Hanks made it out of that. I think that was just like you know people just walked away from that like. I think De Palma had to take the hit for that one. When it's a hit, everyone gets credit for it. When it's a bomb, usually one person takes most of the hit. So were you, was this one of those films where you turn in the script and then you kind of walk away, or were you there on oh, set all the that time? Nice? It's... No, no. no, I mean, I say that, but you no, know, I was there for a while. Like, but, but, you know, I got to go to New York and Rome and Budapest and... Uh, you know, I got to, you know, the, the, I mean, the movie did have a big budget and I did get to enjoy the fruits of that and that, you know, staying in a hotel in New York and we closed down the Brooklyn Bridge for five days to shoot that 15 second scene of him on the gurney on the Brooklyn Bridge You know, walking across the Brooklyn Bridge in my socks calling my mother on her birthday. So it was fun. And Rome, it's so funny because I now have like Rome is one of the great cities in the world, but it's been cursed for me because that's where we shot a lot of us. And then I shot, you know, my my last disaster, Vampire Academy in London. So I'm ruining the major cities one by one. The thing that I kept reading about Hudson Hawk when I went back and was looking at the reviews was just people were so offended by how much money it cost. Yeah, now everything costs that much, even adjusted for inflation. You know, the thing is, this is what was drove me crazy about the movie, is that, you know, I, I did throw in everything in the kitchen sink. That is my fault. Yes, I take responsibility for it. But isn't somebody supposed to say, okay, now this is the script, now let's start to cut it down. And and I would attempt to say, well, do we need to go to Rome? Do we need to go to Budapest? Do we? Need, I, mean, I mean, that was Moscow, but do we need to go to... And, and, like, and I would say, do we need 12 villains? Can, can we like, can we cut out the mafia guys maybe, or the crooked parole officer? Can we go straight to the, the Bayflowers and like, and it was so funny how people, you know, Bruce and everyone would find ways to defend, defend the largesse of the movie, the, the craziness of the movie. Oh no, you need that because that's the people that connect the parole officer to the Bayflowers. Like, oh Jesus, all right. Well, I mean, we did like, I mean, the problem was I did, you know, it was even a, it, it was an even crazier crazier script in that to me the set piece of my script the great scene of the movie was there's a scene where the third thingamabob that they have to get is in Moscow and it's in a spinning safe the spinning safe scene oh my god this is bringing back traumatic memories so there's a spinning safe that keeps spinning with different doors and on one side you have the CIA with high tech high tech tools and then on the other side, you have um, Bruce and Denny Aiello with their low-tech tools trying to rob the same thing at the same time. And it was actually not a very good sequence, and the production designer, Jack Degovia, who did Die Hard, he did amazing shit, lots of drawings. And then this was the shooting script, and then as we started to go over budget and everything, I get a Joel Silver calls me into his trailer one day and says, um, yeah, you know that scene, the spinning safe scene in the Kremlin? 
Yeah, I'm going to need you to rewrite it so it all takes place in Andy McDowell's apartment. So now if you remember the scene in Andy McDowell's apartment, it's basically James Coburn walking in saying, hey, we we robbed the Louvre last night. Have seen in, seen in Moscow? Yeah, not happening. Yeah, the script is, because of course I tracked down one version of the script, and yeah, very different, and I couldn't believe it was 155 pages. 155? Well, we did we did get the script a little down, but... Uh, yeah, I was surprised that it, I think it clocks in now, the movie clocks in about uh, an hour and 39 minutes, something no, like that. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I thought for sure that it would be longer than that, just because so much stuff happens in it. Yeah, but it's, 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 I mean, you can't say it's not moving, you know, and he keeps, he keeps like going through stuff. God forbid we have, um, wait for people to comprehend what's going on. I couldn't believe the caliber of actors that were in this film. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think, I think we got a good cast. I mean, it was, I mean, it was definitely a weird set. I mean, Santa Bernard and Richard Gree Grant, they were in their own little world and they, you know, I don't know if they're just getting in the character, but they were kind of mean. They were mean to all the little people around them. But if and God forbid you gave them a suggestion of like how to do something, they say they would just completely go in a circle and say, "Oh my God, I think this is going to be the, that's going to be the best idea anyone's ever given us for the movie." And then they just go off and giggle. And Dave Caruso was a funny thing because it was you know back when he thought it was going to stay on schedule. He stayed in character, and he was completely silent throughout the entire shooting of the film, and he would only talk to me. He didn't want to talk to Michael or Bruce or the producers. So he would only, if he had any notes or thoughts, he would only tell them to me, but he would stay silent with everyone else. Then there just came a time where, we're just, okay, we're like crazy over budget, and he just, he just got drunk with everybody else, just started talking to everybody, but... He did try. He did try to keep it going for a while. The story that encapsulates Hudson Hawk to me is the is what me and Layman call the "Who's Got the Dick" story, and 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 it's basically there's a line in the movie, not the greatest line in the movie. I mean, you know, mildly clever at best, but um, where he's he's handcuffed and Sandra Bernard's barking away, and 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 Bruce goes, I I. I guess I know who wears the penis in this family. And so we go to shoot that scene and, you know, Bruce comes in and instead of, I guess, I guess I know who wears the penis in this family, he says, who's got the dick? And Michael Williams is just like dripping sweat and just like, oh, yeah, that's very funny, Bruce. Um, but kind of, you know, it's kind of a play on who who wears the pants in this family and, if you could just do one line like that and the skim roll the camera, who's got the dick? And he did it like eight times, who's got the dick. Managed to throw us a courtesy take, you know, the ninth time around, and that's in the movie. But it was just kind of like, you know, for, for Bruce Willis, that's, I mean, for Michael Lehman, that's the, that's the, that's the shooting of the movie in a nutshell. So do I even need to ask how difficult Bruce Willis was to work with? I mean, again, I got a You know, here's the sad thing is like I got, you know, that he genuinely wanted to make a good movie. And I think he enjoyed this. I think he enjoyed, you know, going back to his moonlighting persona a bit and getting the riff and getting to be funny. And, you know, he can't. 
he kept the he always asked me like, "Hey, this is good, right?" Like you know, <laughs> and 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 I go, "Yeah, yeah, I think it's really funny." And you know, I just think, and you know, and if you look at Bruce Willis after Husband Hawk, he became a sphinx. Like death becomes her maybe got to do a little, but uh, you know, I don't think the 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 radioactivity of Hudson Hawk had actually hit yet. But but then he just became a really kind of got so serious, and not just the movies he chose, but like you know, just the way his persona off screen was very serious, and I just never think he went back to smiling again. I mean, what drives me nuts about the reaction movies, like, it was just such an unprecedented, unprecedented hatred. And like, to me, like, you always think, why do they hate me more than anybody else? I'm like, it's just me. But, you know, I can prove to you that this movie was hated more than other movies and that, um, like, Bruce Willis was on James Lipton, you know, inside the actor's studio. And then that guy will, like, you know, suck up to anything. Like, I mean, I've seen him do Martin Lawrence and, you know, have Martin Lawrence on and wax rhapsodic about Big Mama's house, too. So he he goes through Bruce Willis's career and it's like, well, Bruce, Hudson Hawk, what happened? Like, well, James Lipton, are you kidding me? You know, this is the first time I've ever heard him say something negative in the movie. And then Bruce is just uncomfortable. Yeah. We just, just nobody quite got it, did they? <laughs> and, and then Roger Cisco and Ebert, you know, unprecedented. The, you know, like the, the, this week we're going to be reviewing this with this, this. No matter how much they hate a movie, they, up to the top of the show they just tell you what they're reviewing. My week comes out. We're going to be reviewing Backdraft, Thelma and Louise, and we're going to talk about what happened with Hudson Hawk. Like, really? And I still remember Janet Mann from the New York Times review. Like, like I remember saying a prayer before I read the reviews on Friday morning. Then I opened up hers first, and it was like, this is one of the special ones. This is one of the ones that we're going to be talking about for a very long time. I thought, hey, Kay, this is a pretty good start. And then it was not so good. When did things start to turn around? I mean, because now I know if you go out and you Google, you will see what? 50-50 or maybe 60-40 still of hatred for the film, but there is that 40%. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I I get more compliments than people coming up to me giving me compliments about this movie than any other movie. Uh, in that, you know, that, that I think people now take it as a badge of honor. I always say it's the, the most unironically loved worst movie of all time. You know, like, when pe- you know, people can say they like Showgirls or The Room and but there, there is a so bad it's good quality to it. They generally like this movie, and they get angry when people don't get it. Like there was, a, it was on TBS or something. They were showing Hudson Hawk, and um, and uh, they had all these celebrities on. They were going to make fun of it during the commercials. And they had this one Hudson Hawk fan, this African American guy of all things, who knew I had, you know, <laughs> who knew I had this demographic, and and he just. He just sucked the mirth out of the room because he would just talk about why this was a great movie, and they'd, Kathy Griffin was left helpless. Um, well, I always joke that, you know, I would like to write another movie where people tell me how much they love it without saying the word actually. Like, I get a lot of people, but both Hudson Hawk and Fort Fairlane, Nebula and Mishpan, where they're like, all the Mike White favorites, I'm like, they're like, you know, I actually really love that movie. Like, you know, 
I actually thought that was really good. Like, good, you know, it would be great if he just thought it was good and, and it was a great movie. And, you know, no, nobody has to, you know, give me a caveat about Heathers. Like, you know, we had to cut something from that script. Now, now this this is my, my favorite cut from the movie. And when I mean cut from the movie, I mean really cut. It was like all throughout the movie where, and this was kind of Bruce's idea and I kind of ran for it, ran with it, where he wanted a pet monkey, a little Eddie was the name of the monkey. So, but then, you know, we finally do the budget and we did cut some things through the budget. Like, you know, I'm like, Bruce, I'm sorry. You know, we just, we're just, the shooting's so, the schedule's tight that we can't just take time out for a monkey. So I go, well, what if the monkey was backstory? Oh my God, what a horrible suggestion. And so we have this, we create this character of a monkey that was killed and like when Bruce Willis gets out, Bruce Willis gets out of prison. There's a news. He gives this this newspaper. Little Eddie killed. <laughs> the front page is this monkey getting monkey hit in a re- mob hit in a restaurant. And it's like, what the fuck? They killed Little Eddie. I couldn't tell you, man. I had to wait till he got out of prison. Like, God damn it. And then and just like, and then he has these scenes with the mafia guys. Who killed Little Eddie? Who tell? And then you find out um, James Coburn admits to killing his monkey. And, okay, this is the weird part. So James Coburn gets killed, you know, at the end of the movie, and he, he falls off. He even dangles, oh, my God, this movie. He dangles in the air before falling down on a car that goes off a castle cliff, if you vaguely remember. But the last close-up of James Coburn in the movie, if you freeze-frame it, go back and freeze-frame it, He's got a picture of a monkey taped to his head because in the full version of the movie, uh, Bruce Willis slapped his picture, slapped the picture of the monkey on his forehead and said, say hello to little Eddie mother- motherfucker. And he, th- then he kills him. And, but the, the, we couldn't, you know, we didn't, we couldn't take out this the monkey on the head, so that's the last remaining point of Mo- Little Eddie, which also reminds me of the fact that Bruce Willis, the first test screen, Bruce Willis wanted to try out everything. Like, why, why, why not just try out all the jokes? And so, like, I mean, we even have the mafia guy who had the the syringes stabbed to his face. He comes back in Rome with the syringes syringes still in his head. <laughs> like, like the scene where everybody, like the 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 we just robbed the scene. Lou, he comes back into that scene and and gets blown up. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, who remembers this guy? And and so, anytime anybody, a friend of mine has a bad test screening, I have to tell them like about the Hudson Hawk test screening, which was two two and a half hours. And the best part is there was a woman in a wheelchair who tried to walk out. I mean, not literally, but like she turned she turned her wheelchair around and she starts buzzing up the aisle and she gets caught on like a wedge in the carpet. So she goes, and she'll say, will somebody just push that bitch out of here? Yeah, the, the, the script that I have still has little Eddie um, in his graduation cap and that photo and i think that the last line of the film is uh here's the little eddie oh brother so yeah he was a big part of that 
Oh, jeez, yes. Um, I mean, one of my favorite last lines of the movie, which I think Bruce made up, is, and if I ever wrote a book about Hudson Hawk, I would. this would be the title. It's one of my favorite lines is, that's probably what happened. You know, such a great, such a great way to describe Hudson Hawk. Between killing that koala in Fort Fairlane and now little Eddie, yeah, yeah. do you have something against cute animals? I don't, yeah, well, you know there is something because there was there's so many movies that you know well now horror films will always kill the kill the pet you know at some point in the movie, but I find a lot of commercial movies will make a big deal about saving the pet so. You know, and of course now the the big screenwriting book is called Save the Cat, and I've done, I think, two movies in a row where the cat gets killed. So that says something about my connection with the industry. <laughs> Was this the first movie you ever worked on that had a video game adaptation? I believe so. Did you ever play Hudson Hawk, oh, the God, video game? Oh, God, I tried to. I'm really bad at video games, so I had to like watch somebody else play it, but I do remember that. God, that is funny. God, well, you know, it's so funny. It was, thank God it wasn't the last movie I had a video game, but, you know, but, the, but the, you know, you asked if I stayed the whole way, like, you know, I was going through my, I called it my failing upwards montage where, like, oh my God, I got to get a, I got to get rid of the shame of Ford Fairley. Okay, I'll do this Bruce Willis movie. I got to get rid of this Bruce Willis movie. So, so I got to, I get, so there were so many people getting fired in the movie, like Mercia Detmers got fired, although, they tell you it was a back injury. It was not a back injury. She got fired. And like our DP, Yosef who shot Robocop, was replaced by Dante Spinati. Um, but I actually, you know, got the offer to write Batman while we were shooting. So, like, and it's so funny. Everybody at the premiere just, like, you know, acted like I was a rat who escaped a sinking ship. Like, how dare you? But so I missed I missed out like when it really got really got ugly. Apparently, this that scene at the end where uh, Daniello gets blown up, he got so angry about the his the way his hair was treated in that scene that he had like a complete meltdown. <laughs> and so I missed a lot of meltdowns, and I it was still like Bruce and Michael Layman were still polite to each other, but. Um, yeah, when it, you know, not that I was keeping the peace, but when I left, you know, David Caruso started talking, and it all went to hell. Do you think Caruso was secreted, secretly to blame? <laughs> well, not now it's a you know, easy theory. Everyone wants to blame Dave Caruso. But Dave Caruso was actually quite sweet at that time. It was pre-CSI. Oh, uh, yeah, I was asking kind of before, as far as when people started to come up to you and tell you that they liked Hudson Hawk. You know, it's funny. I remember being at a party, and Seth Green, of all people, said, "Wait a second, are you the guy who wrote Hudson Hawk?" Like, um, yeah, I'm also the guy who wrote Heather's. Hey, keep it down. What are you trying to do to me? And and it's kind of like he said, "You understand? People love that movie. Everybody didn't get that movie's an asshole. I can't." But that was, I'd say that was definitely over a year after the movie came out. It wasn't years and years, but it was after the damage had been done. Like, I've I've done movies that are not good, like my last vampire movie. At least the vampire movie had a, a good premiere. The premiere for Hudson Hawk was one of just the sweatiest. Like, as I, you know, I came on and said, is that a 
than an audience or a Da Vinci oil painting. Like, you know, it was just so, so painful. And then there was a party afterwards and it was like, it was like not, you know, deck chairs on the Titanic. It was like after the Titanic had sunk and we're just walking around bubbles coming out of our mouth. It was, it was very painful. They really called you and Layman out so much in those reviews. Just the whole, these guys worked on Heathers. How dare they do this? Well, I ended up, like, I ended up, like, really, you know, because even Demolition Man, like, um, kind of Turan, like, this whole, you know, review of Demolition Man was like, what happened to Daniel Waters? Like, you know, he was such a creative, he could have been such a creative force, and now he's just an asshole, a smarmy asshole hired to punch up action movies. I'm just like, oh boy. And, you know, Kenneth Tran, Kenneth Tran, he, he said Heathers was like, calling Heathers a movie about high school is like calling Moby Dick a book about a fish. I mean, he, he was my, he was my fan. He was my buddy. But they turned on me. It's almost worse now, like right now, than like even when people, like, because it was the 25th anniversary of Heathers, and so, you know, people would, you know, and and they had such great things to say how the movie's held up and how it's become a cultural icon. But then the last paragraph of these articles, Layman and Waters' careers went on to do Hudson Hawk, and they like they never captured the the, the heights of Heather's. Like, oh brother, I'm gonna stop reading these last paragraphs. If memory serves, uh, 2016, that's got to be an anniversary for Hudson Hawk. You think uh, things might... Oh, yeah, everybody's going to be coming back. (laughs) That's funny. Get all the the whole candy gang there, Kit Kat, Snickers, Almond Joy. It's funny, Lorraine Toussaint, you know, she's an orange, she's the new black, and um, she's, I mean, she's had it, and she got... Wasn't Selma, but Anna DuVernay's movie before that, Middle of Nowhere, where she got a uh, Best Supporting Actress nomination for Independent Spirit Awards, and I saw her at that ceremony. Like, hey, Lorraine, I don't know if you remember me, but like, you know, we did. And she, 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 she goes, "What's there to complain about? I got to be in Rome, and it was awesome. It was a job." Yeah, that seemed to be the other thing when they were talking about expenses. Just like like you had mentioned before, nobody toning down the amount of locations because it was just like, this thing cost $51 million and they shot it in all these different countries. How dare they? Yeah, yeah well, you notice like they don't, they, they don't do Cosmo that, I mean, I feel like movies are less cosmopolitan now. Like, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll Let's shoot Rome and Vancouver, like and and Moscow, and you know, let us do it all there. Yeah, there's almost a f- real kind of throwback feel to Hudson Hawk. I mean, even though Hitchcock wouldn't shoot things, well, he did shoot globally, but you know, he faked out a lot of it in in the studio work. But it kind of reminds me of something like, you know, To Catch a Thief, or you know, even some of the more exotic stuff like. Um, uh, what am I? What am I blanking on here? That, was it to catch a that's thief? That's funny that you said to catch a thief because they recently at the the new Beverly Cin- Repertory Cinema down here they had um, a double feature to catch a thief and Hudson Hawk and they had me speak and I'm like, Jesus, really? Somewhere Alfred Hitchcock's rolling in his grave that you paired these two movies together. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's funny. There was a. I think I think that I mean the movie, the movie plays better now 
no, not just because you know that's part Alec Tone plays a little better, but I think it just like you know that that it's the way you come across an old movie um, that you forgive it, you forgive its flaws, and you, you and it's okay that you didn't know what it's about. I mean, I knew my you know my my problem was that you know even when we're shooting the movie, I always joke that Bruce will I mean Joel Silver would shout out at dailies. Okay, and he would always go, okay, I get this movie now. It's North by Northwest. Okay, I get this movie now. It's a Pink Panther movie. Okay, I get this movie now. It's like a Hope Crosby movie. It's like an old Hope Crosby movie. And the thing is, he'd always be right and wrong at the same time. And, you know, that it's all those movies. And it's so funny because, you know, I mean, you asked me when did I know, because, you know, the tide turned... You know, it wasn't just Seth Green at a party. It was, you know, the the what I'm forgetting to tell you is it's Europe that that Europe can appreciate more than one tone. Like I always joke, you know, I always say I was meant to be an Indian Bollywood maker, Bollywood filmmaker, because you know they have every tone in those movies, and they're all three hours. But like, but everyone I would meet from Europe visiting Europe, I had a friend from Denmark, and Denmark especially. Like, they would just come up with me with such reverence. Like, oh, my God, you did Hudson Hawk. That's the greatest American movie of the last 10 years. Like, what? I'm sorry, what did you say? And, but just basically, anybody from Europe, any country, people from France, people from Spain, and, um, and like, Michael Amen and me with Wolfgang Peterson, where he said, Hudson Hawk, masterpiece. <laughs> and... And so, you know, I would joke like, well, who, who dubbed Bruce Willis? Like who, who, who did the subtitles? Like somebody must have done an amazing job. Like, but I think it's because like, you know, and the thing is, if you do look at a lot of the Italian comedies and French comedies that don't get released here, you're like, oh boy, they're pretty bad. But like, but like, but they are like, you know, jarring, don't have to have, um, you know, they they are, you know, they, they don't play by rules. They don't think, I mean, the thing is, sometimes as Americans, we got it, we got it, the American cinema's got it down so well um, that, that, that that they say, okay, we're going to make an action movie, so it's going to be exactly like this. You know, and, and other countries don't, you know, they, they, they don't have that white club test. Yeah, there are times, other than the lack of kung fu, there are times that I'm reminded of a lot of the Hong Kong films when I'm watching this, just because of that, the the kind of shifts in tone and stuff, almost like a, I don't know, like an armor of God, or uh, I'm trying to remember what the Chow Yun-Fat um, thief movie was, where there is that kind of wildness to it, the humor, and kind of the darker tones all mixed in. I am a thief, or something, yeah, no, the, the, once a thief, or something like that. Once a thief, yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Boy, I'm glad you remember yeah, that one. Yeah, because that... that, that, that that did make me feel. I, I had actually, I'd actually already done Hudson Hawk before I saw Once a Thief. But when I did see Once a Thief, it was like, it was like, hey, look, they can do it. Like, you know, oh brother, you know, it's so funny because, like, you know, even to this day, like, you know, TriStar doesn't make as many movies now as I like to say. I gave a lot of. Um, I gave a lot of studio executives independent production deals because I got them fired. But but even to this day, when I hear that that, that TriStar theme music, it's like Pavlovian. I just break into a cold sweat. What are you working on these days? 
I've been, you know, this is this year I took off to write a novel, which I don't know what's going to, like, now I think of this novel as kind of a space program into Mars where I may not make it to Mars, but like I now have split this novel off into three different separate screenplays that I'm trying to do. But me and Michael Lehman are actually together again, and we've been um, getting this TV series together, which I've already written the pilot of, and and we're, you know, we're getting producers and going out and pitching it right now. And it's, it's basically if Mark and Mindy and Third Rock of the Sun were, was done as a kind of um, multi-tone, one-hour HBO kind of thing, like you know that, you know, not a not a goofy half-hour comedy, but played very straight. They're not very. I mean, as straight as Dan Waters and Michael Layman can do, which is not that straight, but. I'm sure I told you the story, kind of shifting gears a little bit. I'm sure I've told you that I actually saw Demolition Man twice in the theater the day it came out, right? Oh, we did tell me you saw it multiple times. I didn't know it was the same day. Only, only Manhunter have I done that, done the same day, two viewings in the exact same day. Yeah, I went to, I was working at a movie theater at the time, and I went to see the first show of the day on that Friday, and then I liked it so much that I took my, uh, my ex-wife to see it that evening. Yeah, I uh, I hope it was I hope that's not what made her ex ex-wife. We we were married in the first show. Because with that one, and I I won't belabor this because hopefully one of these days I will do a demolition man show. You did a, you've done a demolition man show. No, I haven't done. I've only done Free Jack. I haven't done Demolition Man. Free Jack. Um, you mean Ford Fairlane? I've done Ford Fairlane. Yeah. Um, I didn't have nothing to do with Prejack. You can't pin that one on me. You haven't done Demolition Man? I swear to God I've done... Well, you would know, but I I swear to God I've done Demolition. I, I, swear, to God, I swear to God we've done more than one one of these together. Oh, yeah. We did... Well, we did Batman Returns. Oh, my God. You're right. Okay. Oh, well, Demolition Man's a, is a hoot. Because cause unlike Hudson Hawk... Well, actually... Well, yeah. No, I mean, she, actually, there's a lot of Hudson Hawk and then I would... I mean... If you can believe it, if you look at the poster for Demolition Man, like I'm the first, cre- I'm not the story credit, but I'm the first credited screenwriter. And I wrote that in two, you know, my contribution to to Demolition Man was done mostly standing in line for one of Johnny Carson's last shows, where I had to stand in line for 20 hours, and I wrote most of Demolition Man while standing in line. <laughs> But then I only I really only worked on the movie two weeks. But I did change it from being again, I changed it from being like a an action movie to a, more of a more of a comic action movie. I get called in to you know, as a veterinarian to fix an action movie rhinoceros and my solution is to put the head of a giraffe on it. If you like unusual animals, a, a rhinoceros with a giraffe head, you're gonna say, This is this this is amazing. But if you just want a rhinoceros, you're going to say, who fucked up this rhinoceros? Well, I will, uh, I'll save any more questions for, uh, for oh another God, time. I thought, when we, we had, do. I thought we had, well, yeah, definitely. That's a whole other story. And what, what's your, what's your favorite line from Hudson Hawk? Can I ask? From Hudson Hawk? Oh, geez. The first time I wanted a cigarette was when I saw a no smoking sign. Oh my God. Wow. Wow. That's funny. Nobody mentions that one I, because I, I because I, I I like most people I know are obsessed by the line. Looks like you won't be attending that hat convention in July. I love that guy with those blades, and then oh. I'm like watching that going. Wait, did 
did uh, Mike Mignola see this for uh, the characters from Hellboy? Because they had there's that guy with the two oh, swords oh, in funny. Hellboy. Well, you know that that guy Donald Burton. Whatever happened to him? I have no idea. Um, but so he shows up at the premiere with his wife, and we're walking down the carpet. And people started yelling his wife's name, and it's just like I realized I've been standing next to Carol Baker, the actress. And he, he was married to Carol Baker. Very weird. That's probably my first one. And then, of course, the other one is the one that I posted on Facebook earlier today about the uh, If Da Vinci Were Alive Today. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, no. I gotta go. <laughs> Would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long, funny ears, kicks up at anything he hears. His back is brawny, but his brain is weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. And by the way, if you hate to go to school, you may grow up to be a mule. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Hudson Hawk, Little Eddie, the re- the mystery revealed. <laughs> I was trying to explain Little Eddie to my wife while we were watching the movie again yesterday, and I'm like, "You see that thing? You see that on his on his hat? You see that on on James Coburn's hat? That's Little Eddie." I love that Little Eddie had the last line of the screenplay. The whole like, "Here's the Little Eddie." That's the last toast of the film. Ah, oh, so good. That's what he would have toasted with his cappuccino. That's that's true. And I think actually his one-liner when he kills James Coburn is a one-liner about Little Eddie. I was just explaining this to my wife. You know, when you're watching a film and you cut to a scene where there are these where a group of people and these and you hear the ending of a joke and everyone laughs, but you have no idea what the joke is. In Hudson Hawk, that's how one of the scenes begins is a joke about little Eddie, you know, the whole. Um, so we go into this hotel room and we open the door and we see little Eddie in bed with this little monkey hooker. <laughs> that monkey had a look on his face when he got caught that I've never seen on any human. <laughs> it's like, what? The line is when he kills James Coburn is, say hello to, to little Eddie, motherfucker. Did you guys get a chance to watch that video from uh, 2005 where it was the writer, the songwriter? Because th- this movie has a, a story credit uh, to, uh, once his name, Robert Kraft, I think it is, and Bruce Willis. They came up with a story based upon the song, uh, the Hudson Hawk song. And there's a, an amazing three-part video out on YouTube where they're explaining how these two guys got together, what they're, you know, what they hang out and all this kind of stuff, explaining how the song got written and talking about their days back in Jersey and New York in the uh, the early 80s. Did you guys get to see that? It's like a 30-minute clip, uh, 15 minutes of which are, are, are then kind of scattered by the piano together. Yes, that should be an extra on the DVD. Oh, it isn't? I don't know where it came from. I just... Oh, God, it's it's beautiful in many ways. Bruce Willis is just so disappointed still that Hudson Hawk was not the film that he thought it was going to be. Yeah, no, it it must be hard because it's, you know, it's like, I mean, in one way he should be thankful. It's like him and his friend made 
this, you know, dream project. Not many people get to make their dream projects. I mean, you know, and there's people like us that respect it and actually are are that enjoyed it for what it is. You know, we got it and it's great. Just unfortunately, you know, he was on such a high at that time with those diehards. He just wanted to do something different. And, you know, that could be really punishing to an artist when it misses. And, yeah, you could really see it in his in his uh, voice, you know, and the whole demeanor there. It, it is it is quite sad because he probably had so he had so much writing on this film. And not only that, when you read those reviews, man, not only the critics rip the movie apart, they're, they're, they're brutalizing Bruce Willis. You know, they're really they are taking it out on him, you know, and it's like, you know, he's an artist. He tried something. It's an interesting video piece because, um, I mean, at one point, his uh, his cohort, I mean, uh, he makes an observation. He says, you know, you're amazing that you kind of let it roll off your back this whole period of time that they were crucifying you for it. And then Bruce Willis, you know, as humble as Bruce Willis can get, I, I thought it was nice that he said, you know, I was sad that the movie wasn't better received because uh, I thought there were some really good uh, supporting performances in that, uh, that that needed some recognition. You know, I sometimes wonder because this was 1991 that Hudson Hawk came out, and in between he was in Mortal Thoughts, which was definitely a different turn for him. Uh, and I know some people really kind of chafed at the whole idea of him and mortal thoughts, but right before that was bonfire of the vanities in, in 90. And I don't think that Bruce Willis got as lambasted for bonfire, of the vanities as other actors did. I know that, you know, obviously uh, Tom Hanks has survived and gone on, but I know, uh, Melanie Griffith just got raked over the coals for that. And Brian De Palma raked over the yeah. coals for that. But I don't think Bruce Willis got as much mud flung on him as some of the other people. And I sometimes wonder if they were holding back and waiting. And this was the film that they just like, covered in mud and just completely tore apart because it just it feels excessive how much hatred was thrust upon hudson hawk yeah and it's a shame i mean bonfire, bonfire of the vanities was one of the great notorious flops he didn't really want that on his resume so maybe he thought hudson hawk would be his salvation from that in a way which makes it doubly uh, kind of tragic for him but uh, i i i mean i you, you see that culturally now where the only thing we like more than building someone up is tearing them down again, and I, I did think so. I did think that so much of that was just terribly uncalled for. But that being said, I mean Hudson Hawk is the kind of movie during that period of time that a studio would only make with a, a star they can't afford to say no to. It really is a kind of a vanity project in that way. And I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that movies uh, operate the same way with the stars now, nowadays as they did in the '90s. I don't think they have the same kind of currency that they once did. And maybe partly because of movies like Hudson Hawk. Yeah, I think if you have enough Hudson Hawks or Battlefield Earths, those kind of things, you're going to want to stay away from that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you know, this was such a period of Hollywood excess, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, this is a Joel Silver movie and Joel Silver has basically become synonymous for better or for worse with excess. And 
he made so many great films, and yet I think a lot of people just remember him for the expensive movies that failed. Whereas, you know, I, I think there's even a quote in one of the reviews that I was reading where he's like, "Listen, I've made over a billion dollars in revenue with the movies sure. that I've made. I don't care if this one particular film costs fifty-one million dollars." You know, it's just, yeah, okay. You know, I, other films of Joel Silver's that have quote unquote flopped, Hudsucker Proxy. Hudsucker Proxy to me is still one of the Coen Brothers' best films. I love that fucking movie. But because it was a Joel Silver movie, because they, you know, he spent the money that they really shouldn't have spent on that film, it's still, you know, considered a flop. And there are so many other films that he did where it was just like they couldn't get past. The Joel Silver effect, which is right. just a strange thing. And, and he should be given credit for something like Headsucker Proxy, because that is not a safe project. No, no, that's not the third Die Hard film. That's not the second last Boy Scout film. That's not something that, you know, you can rely on. This is taking a chance on these two brothers who have made pretty much nothing but art films. There's nothing on the the Coen Brothers resume that says this is going to be a balls-out action-type film or make billions of dollars at the box office. Bravo to him for that kind of stuff. For me, as a kid in the 80s growing up, he I mean, he was such a, I mean, it was like horror movies and action movies. That's all I grew up watching. And his, I didn't know at the time he was producing all my favorite films, you know? It's like, from like, you know, like Weird Science, Commando, like Action Jackson was the first R-rated ticket I ever bought it. I bought a ticket for when I was a kid and I was not 17 at all. You know, it's just like he produced... Predator, <laughs> like he produced some of the best action movies. He produced some of the best films of the eighties, and you know, one flop, and of course they're gonna just tear into him. You know, and it's just, yeah, it just that's it just it really sucks <laughs> how well, the, how critics sometimes can just just really want well, to take the weapon movies alone. Lethal yes. weapon alone, uh, it, it was such an accomplishment. I mean, he, he, he was in a period of, of the, he was in the superstar producer period, which was something quite new at that time. I mean, around the Don Simpson Bruckheimer period. Yeah. When he really came to prominence. <clears throat> and he defined, alongside those other two producers, uh, he defined the decade, really, the, the late 80s to the kind of the, the early to mid 90s. Well, that also brings to mind the question of were critics laying in wait for Joel Silver as far as like this was his first flop, at least in a long time. I mean, looking at like, you know, the the, the big one that uh, Willis was coming off of with this was Die Hard 2, which was another Joel Silver film after having made Die Hard and everything. Was this obviously this wasn't Joel Silver's first flop, but was this to the point where it's like, oh, now we have this guy. Now he made you know this horrible movie, and Bruce Willis, this big star, really fumbled on this and made this vanity project. And it was just like it almost felt gleeful the way that mm-hmm. certain critics were going after this film. It was just like it, it was to the point where it was like Waterworld kind of stuff where people are just like going crazy about the the budget and about the locations and stuff. And yeah, I brought up earlier that maybe they didn't need to use so many locations. And I know that there were problems with some of the locations as far as like 
that whole stealing of Da Vinci's model, uh, you know, gyrocopter and everything, there was a huge scene that was supposed to happen there, and it was all supposed to take place in in Russia, and there was all this kind of stuff, as opposed to the Louvre in Paris. But it's supposed to take place in Russia and have all this stuff going on in a spinning safe and all this kind of stuff. But they pulled all that stuff back. They had already settled on shooting stuff in Budapest, and apparently they had to like truck all of these sets over from England because they couldn't rent a soundstage in England for cheaper than they could in Budapest. But then with the production, with the cost of transporting all this stuff and rebuilding it in Hungary, it ended up costing, I think more than it would have had they done it in London, which was just kind of a strange thing. But, you know, it was that whole idea of like, I think during this time is where the whole idea of using Eastern Europe for different locations and everything was really kind of starting to happen. You know, the, the wall fell and the, the, you know, the Soviet Union was kind of getting out of the picture in the late 80s and everything. So now it was kind of like this field day of let's make cheaper movies in Eastern Europe. And this one was one of those first ones, though. It was it was a failure as far as the use of the economics and everything. But uh, again, it's just like, you know, people were just harping on that so much. It was like, oh, my God, they shot in Los Angeles. They shot in Rome. They shot in Hungary. They shot in London. They shot here. They shot there. And it was like is that really that important? You know, it felt like people had put their little accountants hats on rather than, you know, writing a real film review. Well, first of all, Joel Silver doesn't make, uh, never made meager, unassuming movies. I mean, his, his, his movies were go big or go home. For the most part, he had an amazing track record. So it's not like he was, <clears throat> you know, hiding WNDs or something. I mean, you, you have to have some perspective on this thing. Going back to that, the piano piece with Bruce Willis and Kraft, you know, Bruce Willis, I think, spoke there that he kind of wanted it to be, you know, one of the ideas was like, what, 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 what could have been one of the backstories to James Bond? And, you know, that's what they were kind of making is a, a Bond film going to all these countries. And, and um, I guess also with, with Joel Silver, I mean, I mean, going back to the budget, Every single review that you you know every single review that you read of this film, they bring up the budget. Right. <laughs> they, every time they bring it up, you know, to to tell the audience like this is how much this movie costs, and you know they didn't get it, and you know one review says to avoid it, and another review like. I think it's, it says uh, James Coburn, who has more style, one of his huge teeth, than Willis has in his entire being. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's just like, whoa! It's like they're just they're you know they're ripping on the budget, they're ripping on Willis, and yeah, they're just they're 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 just tearing this thing apart. Like they this was you know it's it's really brutal. Oh, not only that, I remember when I was a kid before I rented this, there was an episode of Herman's Head I was watching. And there was just this scene when um, I forgot who was it. Williams Ragdale plays Herman in Herman's Head, that TV show, and Hank Azaro was his best friend. And he comes home drunk, and Hank Azaro is like, "I know you're drunk, Herman, but did you really have to stop at a video store and rent her and rent Hudson Hawk? You know, and got a big laugh from the laugh track. So this movie was really like just beaten, just just being beaten, like making its way to Herman's head as a joke." And there was also you know you hit the bottom of the barrel there. <laughs> <laughs> there was also some kind of uh, feeling that uh, Bruce Willis should have been uh, more responsible with the budget. Like it was, it was Bruce Willis's uh, 
doing, that he should have been the film's accountant. And, you know, it was, and I don't know how much of it might be true, but, you know, they just worked to satisfy his every whim, and that's why it got so out of control. So they blamed everything on Bruce Willis. I mean, and, I, I, you know, I'm interested in, you know, you said that uh, Michael Lehman has, kind of holds no ill will towards that whole experience. That had to have been a great blow for him, because here he is coming off of Heathers, which, which promises this great, biting, subversive uh, new director on the horizon, and he's got a big studio movie, and I mean, that had to have had kind of resounding effects. He did Heathers, which was, you know, we're probably all fans of, and then he did like another cool film that I read about in Cinefantastique, and... It took a while for it to come out. It was called Meet the Applegates, or I think it was released as The Applegates. And it's a really, it it was, was, like, again, watching it as a teenager, it was a great film about this suburban family that are really insects from another planet. And it's it's R-rated, there's prosthetics, and it has that, like, Edward Scissorhands suburbia look, but underneath there are these, like, like hideous insect creatures like looking like regular suburban people and it was a fantastic film and that movie didn't even gross a million when it came out and so he was coming off of a big bomb with that when he, this came out yeah it must have been a blow because i think this is the biggest budget he's had and he made some independent movies after this that did really well though yeah and i saw that you know i, I saw that he was directing episodes of true blood during his last season too which were, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of the show, but some of the best directed episodes. Like, there, there, there were s- single uh, camera setups that just by the nature of his choreography uh, were very funny. I mean, you could, they were funny because of the way they were directed. He's got so much talent. So, I, I mean, I, 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 you know, it's a pity that this movie might have hindered his potential in some way, his opportunities. Yeah, I, I agree. Especially if you see the Applegates, you watch Heather's, and then you watch this, and you know, and some of the set pieces are just fantastic. You know, it it, it does suck. We couldn't really see what else he could have really done after this. But I mean, he did. I mean, I guess like he did that one independent movie, The Truth About Cats and Dogs, and that played for like an entire summer during that whole '90s independent boom we had. You know, like that played that made a lot of money, and I think he had another hit after that, but. Those were, you know, but you you don't see his aesthetic in those films. They're something totally different than his earlier works, you know, that he could have been another like Tim Burton or something. If we would have got to see what else he had in him, because those first three films are really unique. I don't know. I really like Airheads, which he also did. And, you know, (laughs) actually, I just was uh, quoting from Airheads just recently because my wife was asking me who Lemmy is. And I was just like, well, he's in he's in Airheads. Don't you remember that? The Lemmy's God. And yeah, no, (laughs) I I like I, I remember I went to see Forrest Gump, me and my friend. And Forrest Gump depressed us so much when we left the theater that we turned back to the box office and we bought tickets to Airheads because we just needed to see something to cheer us up. And I really liked it, too. You know, I'll never forget. I was like, I, I can't go home like this. I'm so depressed. Let's go. You know, and I, I, I didn't realize he directed that, to tell you the truth. Well, yeah, you don't get uh, too many uh, movies with Adam Stanley, Sandler and Steve Buscemi in them these days that are actually good. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't heard any interviews with him where he's expressed this. But on, on Hudson Hawk, was there a dynamic where 
he was almost relegated to to co-director because he was working at the wishes of Bruce Willis. I mean, did you feel like, did he feel in any way that he was in a compromised position in terms of his authority as a director on Hudson Hawk? He definitely doesn't say anything in the uh, audio commentary. I mean, he is consummate professional when it comes to that, which I, I really admire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of like the same thing with Bruce Willis, the whole idea of him saying that, you know, he wishes that some of the, the co-stars had, uh, you know, had gotten recognition for some of these great performances. I mean, that that's pretty classy. And Bruce Willis could have been just a real douchebag about the whole thing if he wanted to, because you know, he could have been like, oh, this was my project and, you know, everybody screwed it up and nobody understands me or anything. And you get a little bit of that in that, um, you know, piece that he did with Kraft. But for the most part, he's pretty, pretty much a class act. Uh, you know, yeah. even when, like when you read that Richard E. Grant diary, I mean, yes, it, it seems like Richard E. Grant liked him. He seems like every single time he saw Bruce Willis, he was in a great mood and was always very nice to him and, you know, very supportive all the time. It seems like when I when I read those diaries, it's like it seems like he was just being positive and trying, you know, and he was always in a good mood and, you know, he was having a good time, you know, but it was it's it's hard making a movie and it's hard when it goes long and you start spending more money and everything but it looked like he had some good spirits there's a book called fiasco and i have to say that hudson hawk for as much of a a bomb that it was when it came out and as nefarious as it was you know becoming a punchline a laugh line on herman's head and everything it wasn't a fiasco it doesn't sound like people there was probably some hard feelings going on at the time you know and i can see like there was probably some tension because of the budget and because of you know you know bruce willis wanting this to be his project and everything but i don't think it was nearly as bad as i've read other projects having been you know having read the devil's candy it doesn't seem like the devil's candy it does not seem like bonfire of the vanities it doesn't seem like heaven's gate yeah. it doesn't seem like even the feuding of kevin reynolds and kevin costner on waterworld it feels like you know there there were some problems but it wasn't this epic of badness like some other films well you know it's greatest sin hudson hawk's greatest sin is that it bombed it's not the budget of the movie it's it's the fact that it didn't perform as well as they wanted it to uh i mean if you remember the lead up to apocalypse now or titanic everything was about this is taking so long the budget's skyrocketing this movie's going to be a disaster but once they make money, everything's forgiven, and nobody even mentions the the budget. Though you know, Titanic will never make back its money, apparently, or something. What? I went back because I, I don't know. I'm obsessed with box office, so I went back and I looked at you know how it did in its first month and what it came out against. And it looks like the fir- you know it, it came out the same weekend as um, Backdraft and and Thelmer and Louise. And so the opening weekend, it came in third and made 7 million. Backdraft was first. What about Bob was second. And then second week, it went from third all the way to sixth place, only making 3 million. Hmm. And then third week, it was in ninth place, made 1.4 million. And by the fourth week, it was in 14th place and made like $600,000. And Home Alone, that was out for 31 weeks, was in 10th place. 
so you know it was going up against Backdraft, City Slickers, Robin Hood, What About Bob, you know, it's Thelmer and Louise, which was like uh, a sleeper, you know. It's so it, it was up against some tough competition, and it came out right in May during that whole, you know, you know maybe if it came out in August. I mean, it still got ripped apart. Maybe it would have done better. Like, I don't, I don't know. But I just guess audiences didn't get it. Maybe that's why it dropped so fast. Like, that's a really that it, that dropped really fast. As you're reading out all these titles, I'm just like, yep, saw that in the theater. Yep, saw that in the mm-hmm. theater. It's like all of those, except for Home Alone, which I probably saw the beginning and ending of a couple hundred times because it was playing at the movie theater where I was working. Otherwise, I saw all of those things in the theater, except for Hudson Hawk. There's definitely something to be said about that. And I don't know if I was, I can't remember if it played the theater where I worked at or not. You know, it's, it seems like I saw everything that was playing there, but for some reason I didn't see Hudson Hawk. And maybe it was just that whole stay away, this is a bomb kind of thing. I think that was the general consensus. I think that was in the air before the movie even came out. I mean, I remember we... We opened the theater because I, I was managing the theater at the time. We opened it in a smaller house opening weekend, and there was uh, barely anyone there. Meanwhile, something like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, I mean, that was still playing in the theater when it came out on video. Yeah, I mean, like like you were saying, Stephen, the, the, the Home Alone, that opened up uh, in our biggest theater and then moved to one of the medium-sized ones. And yeah, that was still playing in the summer, which was crazy because that was a, a Christmas release and people were still going to see it. It was kind of like uh, Hunt for Red October was one of the weirdest box office things that I ever saw where it like, opened in the biggest theater, moved to one of the medium-sized theaters, moved to the small theater, and then all of a sudden had this resurgence and we had to put it back in the biggest theater again, which was just unheard of. That's insane. <laughs> that, those are the days when movies could do that. I remember Batman played like the entire summer almost to its VHS release. Well, yeah. I mean, these days, if Hudson Hawk opened, it would be gone by that second weekend. You get the one weekend. And if it doesn't perform, man, it is just right out of there. It would yeah, be that, direct to VOD. <laughs> that's, that's where Hudson Hawk would end up. Unfortunately, that's where a lot of Bruce Willis stuff is these days. It's yeah. all going to VOD. I keep seeing these movies where I'm just like, wait a second, I don't remember that coming out. Wait a second, what? What's this thing? What's that thing? Like, you know, just uh, I'm trying to remember what the last one that I, I caught on, like, uh, you know, like VOD kind of thing. Like, was it Cold Light of Day or, or Vice or something, something like that? Yeah, there are so many movies that I just keep running across where it's like. Bruce Willis is starring in this, and it's like, when did this thing come out? Oh, it never did. Oh, okay, that's a surprise. He still makes some good movies. You know, I really like the Red series. I didn't care for The Last Die Hard, though, I gotta tell you that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the last two weren't very good. But I'll say Looper, I still think Looper was one very of the good. best movies of that year. Yeah. Looper's fantastic, and then, like, you know, I'm, I'm cheating. I'm looking at his IMDb. He did like end up also like in Moonrise Kingdom, which is a, like you know he can come back and do real roles and then do GI Joe. You know, like he's versatile, which is which is very you know which is but not every actor could still you know he's still. I mean, think about it. think about all the actors that were around in the '80s and how many of them are still acting. Like he's still in. He still does you know VOD, but he still does you know feature films. It's, and by the way, I mean that that was his that was his kind of uh, 
uh, that was the trek his career was taking from the beginning. I mean, uh, right after Hudson Hockey does a part in Billy Bathgate, uh, he did the Nobody's Fool, and then the third Die Hard. You know, he's, I think he's been in country. He did that film. He's been very good at going back and forth between the the wannabe big budget action uh, epics and the and the smaller independents. Yeah, that's right. And I forgot, like he was in, you know. Death Becomes Her also, which is a comedy. And I, I, I freaking love The Last Boy Scout. I fucking... Oh, yes. And that is a line-for-minute movie that's just, you know... It, it's fantastic. <laughs> Last Boy Scout, they definitely send up a lot of these action movie things. But it's within an action movie. You know, the whole... Like, the speech that he gives Damon Wayans at the end, as far as, like... If you hit somebody with a surfboard, you have to say something clever, like, Surf's up, pal. And... That is like so like Hudson Hawk was sending up so many things, but it's just like I don't think people necessarily realized what a lampoon it was. And I think it would take like quite a few years. You know, I think you mentioned, James, the whole idea of like young uh, James Bond kind of thing or what happened before James Bond was James Bond kind of going the opposite way of a over the hill James Bond or a James Bond who's gone to seed. I see a lot of parallels between Hudson Hawk and like an Austin Powers where you get the whole idea of the spy genre being set up and everything sent up. But in that one, it is much more telegraphed to the audience what's supposed to be funny and when they're supposed to laugh. Whereas I think a lot of people are just kind of left scratching their heads when it comes to Hudson Hawk because it's it's kind of in that action mode, but also in that comedy mode. And I think a lot of times when you cross those genre lines, people just freak the fuck out. Yeah, it yeah. would be nice. It w- would be interesting if Bruce Willis would do, and maybe he has and it's just not occurring to me, but if he could do kind of a uh, a, a, not necessarily a parody, but some kind of takeoff on his own persona as an aging action star. I mean, something along the lines of what Dustin Hoffman did in Tootsie, which was take off a takeoff on the really demanding, uh, impossible actor, uh, which he was. I mean, it, it would have been nice if there was some that level of uh, self-consciousness and kind of being able to laugh at himself in that way. And, uh, you know, Hudson Hogg could have benefited from that, but I think that was probably a little too early in his career uh, to do that. Yeah, he could do for a JCVD. Yeah, he's, he could be funny. He's action. He's, he's, he's played it all, if you think about it. He's, he was like a villain in Miami Vice back in the day, too, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I I saw that on the CV, and I was just like, oh yeah, I forgot all about that. And I will say, I was a fucking huge fan of Moonlighting. Like, Moonlighting was one of those shows that I memorized while I was watching it. And like a few years ago, I caught some reruns on like Bravo or something, and I was just like saying the lines with them as they were saying them. And I'm just like, yeah, I haven't seen this show since it was first on, but yet I remember all of these lines. And that's a testament to great writing and great acting and it was just wonderful to be able to revisit those and just remember how great they were you know what though now that i'm thinking about it and you mentioned moonlighting uh a a movie that i absolutely adore it's always been one of my favorite movies from the 80s is is uh, clean and sober the michael keaton movie which was directed by glenn gordon karen who created moonlighting and i remember interviewing glenn gordon karen and he did say that he was just finishing Moonlighting when he was embarking on Clean and Sober, 
and Bruce Willis really wanted that lead part. Uh, essentially, Glenn Gordon Karen said, there's no way I'm going to work with Bruce Willis again. Right. Uh, so so he had uh, he had a reputation for being difficult even back at the very beginning of his career when it first started to take off. Yeah, they really kind of screwed the pooch when it came to Moonlighting. That last season, season and a half, when Willis's career was taking off and he just really didn't have time for it and that those last couple seasons just became well they were a joke in some regards like they would actually make fun of themselves as far as how few episodes there were and how bad that they were while citizens all across the world settled into easy chairs hoping to see another new episode of moonlighting news broke of one star's pregnancy and the other's unfortunate luck on the icy slopes of idaho but it was a real disservice to the fans, and it was a real just bad time if you were a Moonlighting fan. I only saw a couple of episodes, but the only couple of episodes I saw were the Mark Harmon episodes, because <laughs> everyone was talking about it. So was that what, what time period was that in? Was that was he Sam the astronaut? God, I forget. <laughs> it was a big deal, and that's when I watched it for a little while. But that the humor of that show, I'm you know I'm. I'm is you know it, it is this similar to hudson hawk some of it is yeah we're looking for a man with a mole on his nose mole on his nose a mole on his nose what kind of clothes what kind of clothes what kind of clothes do you suppose what kind of clothes do i suppose would be worn by a man with a mole on his nose who knows did i happen to mention that i bothered to disclose this man that we're seeking with a mole on his nose i'm not sure of his clothes or anything else except he's chinese a big clue by itself how do you do that gotta read a lot of dr seuss that was a big show so again i guess it was just just the advertising of the film because that was a whole built-in audience already with comedy because when he did die hard that was one of the things it was like he never did a film like that before and that was one of the reasons why i didn't really rush to go see it you know because i was like i was used to rambo commando you know shirtless guys big muscle dudes taking out arsenals of bad guys when it came to bruce willis the guy from moonlighting in a tank top I didn't think it was going to be good. You know, that's why I went to go see the Deadpool instead because I thought that was going to be badass. And then (laughs) little did I know that this other movie was going to fucking blow my mind. And so, you know, he he had a lot to, you know, like I think Hudson, I mean, uh, Die Hard was a pretty big deal for him. I think more than any other, uh, most other movies, maybe any other movie, Die Hard really set the standard for uh, a redefinition of an action movie. Because all of a sudden the action movies didn't weren't about uh, the impenetrable hero like a Schwarzenegger or Stallone. It, it, Bruce Willis made it an everyman genre with Die Hard, and I think that was seismic. Yeah, I totally agree. Because there were times in the '80s where some of these action heroes were almost too big for their britches. Like looking at, and I love the original Total Recall, and I just really don't like the remake at all. But the one thing I had about Total Recall, the the Verhoeven version, was I always thought what would have been like had they cast someone who looked more innocuous in that role? What ha- what would have been like if they had cast somebody like a Tom Hanks or somebody in that role where you don't think there's any way in hell that he's this secret agent who was on Mars for all these years and stuff, whereas you look at Arnold Schwarzenegger and you're just like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. 
Yeah, I could I could totally buy that. This guy, yeah, he was a secret agent. And he's this kick-ass action hero and stuff. So it's no big surprise when he shoots somebody and he looks at the gun and he's just like, oh, wow, I didn't know I knew how to shoot. Whereas if you had taken like a normal guy, quote-unquote, and thrown him in that role, I think that would have been a real big surprise had we found out, oh, yeah, he does have this backstory and it's you know he was this real kick-ass guy. Fast forward so many years where you have Colin Farrell in this role and he looks more like a normal person, but I just don't give a shit. Before Schwarzenegger, when it was supposed to, you know, it was supposed to be like Richard Dreyfuss in the role they they wanted for a moment. And I forgot who the director was at that moment. I don't think that was the Cronenberg version, but there were so many people attached to that movie for so long. Yeah, and I think William Hurt was one of them, too. So I, I mean, I'm happy without that one. But wow. <laughs> it was an interesting Richard, like, Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus at Total Recall. Get your ass to Mars. It's uh, <laughs> kind of budget. Consider that a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Let's take another break and play trailer for next week's show. I want it. You probably think I'm beautiful, Dr. Roberts, but I'm not. I want it. My nose is 0.2 millimeters too narrow. And my cheekbones are 0.4 millimeters too high. I want it too. I do television commercials. They want a certain look. I did surgery on several girls a few months back, commercial actresses. And there have been some suicides. You don't know what's going on. This is more than commercials. They're killing all the girls that are perfect. DMI measured some girls for possible surgery. We were conducting an experiment. Hi, I'm Cindy. I'm the perfect female type, 18 to 25. Here you see a typical computer model being made. Hi, I'm Cindy. I'm the perfect female type, 18 to 25. What have you got me mixed up in? I have a right to know if somebody's trying to kill me. That's right. We are back next week with even more evil James Coburn. We'll be talking about Michael Crichton's Looker with Heather Drain and Marjorie Conrad. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-hosts, Jamie Duvall and Steven Scarlatta. Jamie, what have you been up to lately over at Movie Geeks United, sir? Well, we're just closing off our Art of the Documentary series, which was the month-long series with uh, about 30 interviews with documentary filmmakers. And uh, throughout the month of February, uh, it's Oscar month. So we'll be hopefully interviewing quite a few nominees, as many as are willing to come on our show, which could be many, could be zero. Man, I'm selling it hard, all right? Uh, uh, It's always an exciting period of time, uh, Oscar month, so we're we're absolutely geeky about it. So that's it, moviegeeksunited.net. Well, you know, you're not going to have to talk to any African-Americans at all next month. Yes, yeah. We were doing our predictions uh, on our last program, and I said, you know, Leo will probably win Best Actor, and, and he will be the darkest winner of the night, Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> <laughs> he and his swarthy looks, yeah. <laughs> Jeez, man. I can't wait for Chris Rock to just have a fucking field day oh, with yeah. that. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, I'm glad he's the host this year, yeah. Yeah, very fitting. So, Stephen, what have you been up to? And uh, is it true that you have recently written a episode of Final Girl? Oh no! I, I it was a movie called 
Oh, Final Girls. Um, Wait a second. There's a movie and a TV show called Final Girl. I guess I don't know. And then there's another movie called The Final Girls uh, with an S. Oh, I'm thinking of Scream Queens. Yes, I wish I wrote Scream. <laughs> I wish I wrote an episode of Scream Queens. That'd be awesome. Uh, no, I, I wrote a movie called. Uh, well, I got a story by credit um, now because uh, the original script I wrote it kind of changed. Uh, but it's uh, Abigail Bresden, Wes Bentley. Alexander Ludwig, he's in the other movie, The Final Girls. So, yeah, I wrote that one. That came out over August. But I, I, I have another one, hopefully coming out this year. It's about a VHS board game that opens the gates to another dimension. It's called Beyond the Gates, and it's uh, it's produced by Barbara Crampton and it's directed by Jackson Stewart, and it's uh, it's got some cool horror people in it, like. Uh, Bria Grant from Halloween 2, Chase Williamson from uh, John Dies at the End, and Graham Skipper from The Mind's Eye. So it's a little low-budget horror film I co-wrote, co-produced, coming out later on, I ho- hopefully this year. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. I am so confused by this whole Final Girl, Final Girls, Scream Queens thing, because Abigail Breslin was in Scream yes. Queens, yeah, and, and she's in Final Girl. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's it's uh, mad. Yeah, we sold Final Girl, and then Final Girl sold right after it, but then it took forever for Final Girl to come out. Yeah, I don't know. It's Yeah, it's very weird. Yeah, she's in both. (laughs) And then there's a movie called The Final Girls. So, yeah, it's pretty confusing. I haven't seen any of them yet, so I'll have to see. (laughs) So I got to see. I was hoping that when I read that you're doing Beyond the Gates, that it was a sequel to The Gate. That would be freaking awesome. That was a big influence on it. We love love The Gate so much. Hopefully the sequel. We can delve in. Man, I... I know you are a huge horror fan, so that must have just been pretty awesome working with all these great people. It was a dream come true because it was my dad. My dad took me to see From Beyond in the theaters, and I used to get Fangoria's all the time. So I knew who Barbara Crampton was because of From Beyond and Reanimator. I had the biggest crush on her when I was a kid, and so humbled that all these years later she produced a script i co-wrote with this really awesome filmmaker jackson stewart and it was like a dream man it was like so cool to you know it was an honor to to have you know to work with her so it was very cool that's fantastic so where can people keep up with you you can find me on twitter uh my handle is neck but it's x the letter x the word neck and the letter x again so you can find me on twitter there i usually follow back pretty much everyone that follows me so and then like there's a fucking link to a tumblr and you can see buying shit and all this other crap from you're selling that as good as jamie was selling the the oscar month yeah <laughs> it's like why am i doing vine <laughs> it drives me good it's like i don't know sometimes i come up with cool ideas i think and then the one look likes it so i guess i gotta keep doing it i don't know i just i, 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 I don't know i eat that shit up for some reason check out this oscar month could be freaking you know in your or, or or you know any of these guys or none of them you never know <laughs> it's nice it's like roulette Yes, it's uh, it's uh, you know it's a roll of the dice, man. I mean, you know, I mean, when you set out to do your shows, you you never know who's gonna who's gonna bite, you know. So yeah, yeah Bruce Willis and Danny Aiello could have stopped by, but that would have been awesome. <laughs> 
But no, instead I just continue to mine poor Daniel Waters' misery. You know, it's like, what, what other embarrassing things have you done, Daniel? Let me just, you know, go in there and, and, and cut into them and Oosh. bring oh, back God. all the pain. I, I remember talking to the cinematographer of Battlefield Earth, and he was like, please ask me about anything other than Battlefield Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Great episode, and I was like, that's the only thing I want to talk to you about. How did you get the camera to tilt so far? <laughs> Maybe there's a chance now with Creed that Bruce Willis and Danny Aiello could do a Hudson Hawk too. You know, Danny Aiello gets him out of prison again all these years later. You don't know why he got there and they do a new mission. Just call it Hawk. Yeah, call it Hawk. Exactly. <laughs> Just do it like the independent. I remember that movie that <laughs> did that was called The Hawk is Dying. I think that that's probably what the sequel to Hudson Hawk would be called. <laughs> Where they could recast it with girls like they're doing the uh, Ghostbusters and call it Lady Hawk. I guess Charlie's Angels is the female Hudson Hawk in a way, because the action in that movie is so batshit, but it's missing the humor. But I enjoyed talking to Hudson Hawk with you guys. That was awesome. Well, thank you. It was great talking with you guys. I was so glad that we were able to do this. I mean, really, you know, uh, Stephen, you really kicked it off when you just sent me that Richard E. Grant diary entry. It was just like, okay, yeah, yeah, we we got to do this. Let's let's do it up. And then chase you know chase down Daniel Waters, and he was just like, oh god, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you again about something that makes me miserable. Oh man, but it's a well written script. Yes, it is. It's a very well-written script. I mean, if you can find it out there, listeners, it's it's a fun read. And like I said, you'll catch really fun lines of dialogue that I think went by a little bit too fast in the film. And I mean, it's it, 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 I think it's a it's a really sharp script, man. It's, it was a really good read. Thank because I did this podcast is the reason why I read it. It read the novelization and and in both. <laughs> Gotta say. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. Please go on over to our website, projection-booth.com. Leave us your feedback. Leave us your stories about Little Eddie. And uh, you know, link on over to our uh, iTunes. Uh, leave us uh, a rating and a review. It really helps. If you want, give us some of your money over at Patreon. We've got a Patreon going now. So just, uh, yeah, those are those are some ways that you can make it up to, uh, to Little Eddie, wherever he is, somewhere in monkey heaven. guy who controlled the sea got killed by 10 million pounds of sludge from New York and New Jersey this
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.